She was blonde as a gremlin, so it does seem to be her natural hair color. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is author A.R. Moxon, best known for his novel, The Revisionaries, and his Twitter account, Julius Goat. Andrew is here to talk with me today about Megan Puchanu Braddock, one of my favorite characters and a pretty obscure one who is finally getting some shine again in this new reign of X. So I'm excited to dig deep because I want all of you new readers to join the Megan Hive. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Connor. Thanks for having me. Um, it's it's really uh, exciting to be a part of this podcast. And just at the jump, I've got to tell you, um, I first heard about this. You put it on your Twitter account that you are working on it. I think you put some early um, artwork up and I, I was on Twitter as I often am and said that it looked like it was very much my shit. Yeah, <laughs> you were an early adopter for sure. So it proved to be true. I have a number of podcasts that I listen to. There's always one or two that are sort of appointment viewing when they drop. I'm like, I'm listening to that now. And this is one of them. So it's exciting. Thank you so much. Well, uh, thank you for putting it together. I, I think it's a and you've had guests on who have spoken to this as well, I think, but I think it's becoming a vital podcast within, I think, an important discussion culturally, you know, with, with X-Men being this power fantasy that exists in comic books, which are really sort of taking over culture, and X-Men in particular belonging to marginalized communities, to have people who speak into that in different ways. It's been an education for me. I, I, you know, I'm speaking as one of your flat scan. As a flat scan, right. Yes, speaking as a flat scan listener, I mean, I've come to this discussion through other, you know, podcasts that deal with cultural issues and X-Men podcasts as well. You know, obviously Jay and Miles have been around of for course, a long time yeah. speaking to this. But it's a specific way of going very deep into in, into characters but going across the entirety of of the history of this very long entangled continuity that is you know x-men aren't right at the top of the superhero heap right now avengers of all things are which is bizarre because when i was a kid the x-men and spider-man were the only marvel characters anyone cared about same i was a you know i was a spider-man guy true for was 20 an years guy. yeah 30 almost god yeah 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 and 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 i think they're coming i mean obviously they're coming back um you know if, if you think about the fact that this has to be about the marginalized voices because of what x-men is having that conversation there to 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 give somebody like me who who, who grew up really not thinking about those things and really engaging with the mutant metaphor in a way that it, it, it wasn't entirely being written in this way, but it was being received in this way as, as sort of the assimilationist Charles Xavier. Mm -hmm. You know, that that outlook was not just um, being received in a way that was was 
uncritical, but was was just almost seemed axiomatic. Like, well, of course, this is the way that you would want to do it. And right now, with the Hickman run um, really achieving um, not just blast off, but launch and orbit, and and bringing very a very vital new look to it, um, and and really forefronting that. Having a podcast like this, I guess what I'm what I'm saying, having a podcast like this that provides that entry point into the ways that the the story has always touched upon much more in ways that are right out on the page as well as, as might be a little bit more subtle that always engage with that. I, I just I just think it's it's been a really interesting conversation so far and it's uh, it's exciting to take part in it. Um, a little, a little intimidating, maybe to to join, given the the real murderer's row of guests <laughs> you've had so far. But I'll do my best. I have every faith in you. Thank you for articulating all of that. I, uh, I don't know. The last few weeks, because of the characters that we were talking about, Magneto and Rogue, I've yes. mentioned Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers a few times, and there are Rick Remender stories I think are superb. Mm-hmm. And I'm very hesitant on this podcast to talk about recent stories in a negative way because I think that comics fandom can be very negative. I think we all feel very protective of these characters. We all feel very protective of these stories. And it's easy for things to get hostile. And I want to create a mostly positive space. But that story, that story is just really difficult for me. I think because of the way it created a conversation Mm -hmm. because remember was approaching it as a straight white man and his position, which he articulated in interviews because everyone was sort of like, what's going on here? You know, he has, and there's a havoc episode coming in February and we'll dig deeper into this storyline in that I'm sure because the guest I'm going to have on is like me, a havoc fan, which is a difficult position to be in in the history of the x-men because he kind of yeah never uh never has a good day i i think you mentioned too that he's he's sort of the natural avenger because he he was on the government x-factor right. and he's always been a little bit more assimilationist he never really wanted to be a superhero he's never really right. wanted to be part of the mutant thing so it makes total sense my issue was if you're not familiar with uncanny avengers and with the storyline that i'm talking about there's a very I would say infamous, honestly, because it was critically pretty poorly received and the fans received it pretty poorly. There is a speech that Havoc gives as part of the Avengers Unity Squad right? where he refers to mutant as the M word and says, I'm not a mutant, I'm Alex and I don't, you know, you should see me as... Basically, he says that every... He advocates a sort of colorblind approach to human-mutant relations and rejects mutancy as an identity. Your, your, this is sort of what I mean, actually, Connor, because your, your podcast made reference to it. And I, so I was curious and I went and I actually, I'm not familiar with Uncanny Avengers beyond what I've heard from, you know, in passing on, on other uh, podcasts and just other uh, parts of, of, uh, of, of X-Men dialogue. But I went and I checked it out and it's exactly the sort of thing that when I was first reading when I'm 12 or 13 or 14, or honestly, even, you know, up to 
however many years ago, I would have read it and I would have probably been nodding along. Well, and that's the thing. So when Remender was challenged about yeah. this scene, because a lot of people who are fans of the X-Men and particularly people who are racial minorities or LGBT plus sure. queer people, Jewish people, there were a lot of people who took exception to this. Mm -hmm. None more so than Brian Michael Bendis, who had Kitty Pride deliver a vicious rebuttal speech I saw that in too. his own book that was occurring at the same time where she said, yeah, I am a mutant and I am a Jew, and I'm going to tell you those things up front, because if you have a problem with either of them, we're going to have a problem. Right. I've said, you know, I, I like Bendis a lot on other things. I wasn't crazy about him on the X-Men. That scene almost redeems everything I disliked about Bendis on the X-Men. About Bendis. <laughs> because, well, just about, you know, because most, my thing with him mostly was just that Emma didn't ring true to me, and she's my favorite, right. so that's hard, Right. But right. Kitty Pride in particular is a character who I think, honestly, since the Whedon run had been written in a way that I didn't care for, uh, where I felt like a lot of the character growth she'd experienced in Excalibur, which is the book we're going to talk about soon on this right. episode, got sort of erased in that mm -hmm. astonishing run. She just sort of regressed to the character she was when she was the Uncanny X-Men's sidekick. Right. That to me was, it was the first time it felt like that Kitty was back. And in the time since, I've really enjoyed Kitty's characterization now as Kate in the yeah, new era. I think that Duggan really gets her. I think that Hickman really gets her. And I think that Bendis really got her. And I think that that, having her specifically rebuke Havoc was sort of the, the gauntlet throne that brought the character back in a lot of ways, as far as I'm concerned. The, the reason I bring up the Rick Remender thing is... I was out of comics for a while. Right. I fell off after the decimation for the most part. I still followed it, but I wasn't, I was just not happy about that in part because again, the minority metaphor was important to me and I felt like the decimation undermined it. Right. So there was that, but then by the time that story rolled around, I had really detached because Marvel had, I don't know what the right word is, had downplayed the X-Men so significantly. They had marginalized. They the had marginalized the X Men. I didn't want to be glib. That was the word that came to mind. Yeah. You know, in the sense that because presumably, I you know, I can't speak to whatever was actually going on, but presumably because of the IP rights being tied up at Fox, sure, it seemed like first of all you couldn't create any new mutant characters. That was obvious, and if you could, they were very minor or they died or whatever, and the X-Men themselves were more than ever before cordoned off to their own corner of the world that was not allowed to matter. Most of the time, the IPs that they wanted to push, like the Avengers, or eventually the Inhumans, more ridiculously, were set up to be heroic by shitting on the X-Men, which was crazy to me because the X-Men have so much social capital that no matter who owns the film and merchandising rights, and I say this as a literary agent, I understand how lucrative and important merchandising rights are, but it doesn't make sense. It's very much cutting off your nose to spite your face, in my opinion. And Uncanny Avengers, to me, the remainder Uncanny Avengers, I think the Duggan and Zub runs that come later are quite good. Right. I just don't like the premise of Uncanny Avengers, so I'm never going to be like a fan, but I thought those runs were good. But the very concept of Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers is the X-Men are wrong. Right. They haven't assimilated enough. Right. And the only way forward for mutants is for them to 
let go of the idea that being a mutant is an identity of any kind and just be humans. And it's just like being left-handed or whatever. And that really came across in that M word page. (laughs) As disgusting. I was appalled by it. And I was one of the many, many people on social media who voiced my confusion, my befuddlement at that character turn. And more specifically at the fact that the comic was portraying it as correct sure and then remember in interviews first he said that anyone who didn't like it should drown in hobo piss saw that that wasn't the most (laughs) mature response one of my five least favorite things to drown in yeah i would prefer not to right and then more importantly though to to me in terms of the way it got my back up was he argued that there's no reason why mutants have to stand for any kind of minority group. Right. And in his opinion, they're just misfits like he was growing up. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. Part of the reason why the X-Men were popular is that, yes, a misfit of any kind can see themselves in these characters. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with a flat scan, as I playfully call you on this podcast, loving the X-Men. I think actually part of why the message of the X-Men is successful is because it's able to reach people who might not otherwise be interested in reading a book, quote unquote, about social justice. It is absolutely a window in. It's a window into a political schema that a lot of people might not otherwise care about. That's fine. What's not fine is when someone who has all of that social capital, et cetera, decides, therefore, all of you people are just reading into it. Right. That really annoyed the shit out of me. Yeah. I bring that up because in a lot of ways, this podcast is a direct response to that scene Mm -hmm. and to how much it upset me. Yeah, I know. I, I, and that absolutely comes across. And I think that that's, that's what's vital is these days, I think more and more, And not as much as you'd want to see, but more and more you have people who would have just taken the default view that would be represented by somebody like Alex saying, well, why don't you just call me Alex? Right. Why isn't that enough? And just think, well, yes, of course, because, you know, I am just Andrew. So why can't everyone just be like me? Of course. For, for, you know, life, life is perfectly fair. And, uh, and, and there, there, there is no structural injustice um that that is at play here that i can perceive so why why wouldn't everybody else agree those sorts of things i think are becoming more and more people are starting to understand even if they aren't marginalized specifically that that's not true because of this political moment if you want to see it you can see it and if you don't see it then it's because you don't want to see it you know, coming to this podcast and and hearing that, uh, I think it was on the Rogue, but it might have been on the Magneto. I listened to both of them recently, and and hearing you know hearing this reference to the M word speech, and then reading it and going, oh hell no, and then <laughs> realizing, you know, though, of myself, you know, the, my my yeah. in, my inner monologue, you know, though. When you were first reading these books, and up until maybe not 
so long ago as you'd like to think, you might have not along, right? And and it would have been it would have been something that would have passed uncritically. And 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 so that's sort of that's sort of what I meant. Um, and, and I think that we're on, I think we're very much, uh, saying the same thing. Yeah. And I don't think Rick Remender is an evil person or a bigot or anything like that. Sure. It was just an arrogant thing to do. And it was to me poor. And I didn't start this podcast to rebut it, right. but every episode that goes by, I find myself thinking every now and then on some level, that's what I'm doing. It, it, it rebuts it. It rebuts it by existing. It, and it um, and and as I say, I think it's it's vital. At the same time, you have the X Men themselves in on page, realizing that they're the same thing. It's it's that they are yes. having a political moment, and you yes. covered this very well, I thought, in the Magneto episode. But they are having a political moment where they say, "No, wait a minute. This this isn't the way to go. We're we're." You know, uh, there are very few assimilationist uh, mutants left on Krakoa. That you know, right. it, it's 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 a very different thing. Um, that uh, you've had other guests speak to, I think, far more intelligently than I'm able to. But um, I just wanted to express my appreciation for what's happening here and um, and and elsewhere, and and particularly around something like X Men, which is so mainstream and is so popular and is a sort of a power fantasy that a lot of people who don't think about these things will engage in and then it, it can become that moment too. So. That's my hope. And I, I'll tell you, I get a lot of emails from people saying similar things and I find that very rewarding. What I would love to do now, after you were so kind and complimentary about my podcast, is talk more about you. You asked to talk about Megan, which delighted me because she's a character I have loved since I was a child, but not a character a lot of people are that knowledgeable about. I was excited at the prospect of doing an episode all about her, and I was thrilled that she was your suggestion. So I'd love to hear about your backstory with the X-Men, with these characters, and why you wanted to talk about Megan specifically. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think, first of all, the reason I'm very much looking forward to talking about Megan, um, a, a, I, you know, already in the Megan hive, for sure. Um, and it really goes back, um, as anybody who who is a fan of the character, I would assume, to that original Excalibur series. Some people mm -hmm. might just be Cap Captain Britain fans uh, and fans of that run, but but it was harder to get that in America. So I think for most of us in America, Much. we read Excalibur first. Yeah. Look, to, to, to kind of go back to the, to, to the very origin story of me with, with comic books and with X-Men. Um, I first walked into a comic shop, probably not probably, I know it must've been 1987 because the books that I bought were Craven's last hunt, uh, Spider-Man uh, series, the first three issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I got X-Men 221, which was, right in the new comics section. That's the first appearance of Mr. Sinister. That's, sure I think, the second issue of the Sylvester run. Um, mm -hmm. X-Men Annual. It's the one with Horde. Alan Davis wrote it. Yeah, the 87 one where they all get their heart's desire. They don't actually all, which is interesting. Well, right. No, but you know what I mean, where, where he tempts them with their yes. heart's desires. 
And and that one is an Alan Davis drawn book mm-hmm. with Captain Britain and Megan. And I think maybe the first X-Men book with Megan in it. Is that possible? Megan is in the New Mutants annual the year before. She cameos in the one that introduces uh, Betsy. And that's and that's also Alan Davis. It is. And and that just happened to be the day that I uh that I walked into the comic store. It's sort of like uh bl- putting a blindfold on, shooting an arrow and hitting the bullseye. Uh, we're right at the cusp of a lot of greatness. We're in a bunch of greatness. I think I got that uh, one of the classic X Men, maybe you know ten, eleven, thirteen. One of those where the you know we're starting the Dark Phoenix um, or or Jean's Phoenix already. Uh, we're about to get into the Outback era. Fall of the Mutants is a few months away, um, and we're also because of that the X Men are about to die and a few months away from Excalibur. The sword is drawn. Basically, in two annuals, Davis ha- does Captain Britain and Megan stuff with Claremont, and then the two of them bring those characters to Excalibur in '88. Yeah, and and so you know, I'm I'm going to um, I'm going to probably go on at length about Alan Davis. That's <laughs> in, allowed. In this, which is which is you know that's that's going to be what we do. I mean, he's her creator, and he is the definitive artist on the character, for sure. There's no, so. there's no doubt. Two of my favorite artists uh, for X Men ever are Silvestri and Alan Davis. Same, they're my top two. They're my top are, two. Are they really? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, Jimenez is up there. The Jimenez issues of New X Men, but I just love Phil's work generally. So I'd, I'd read Phil on anybody. I guess it's worth noting. It's extraordinary the extent to which our tastes have run parallel. We, every time you talk, you know, I, I, I'm getting I'm getting these books that you were sort of introduced to through your father's collection, mm-hmm. I believe. Right. And, and I was getting them. I was buying them new, um, you know, uh, about about 10 years before. But, you know, I'm an OG uh, uh, Psylocke type of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, the 80s rogue where she's where she's, you know, scrappy, <laughs> scrappy and rascally. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm very ambivalent for many of the same reasons. Great mm-hmm. word. And I fell away in the 90s. The 90s did not do it at all for me for for reasons. We could get into those reasons if we want to. but Well, we'll get into them in this episode because the late 90s run of Excalibur is pretty dire, honestly. Uh, yes, we are going to get into that. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's, well, I have, I have had a, a pretty strong rule that I've only recently started making exceptions for, which is, unlike any other book, um, Excalibur relies on, uh, among among mainstream superhero comics, Excalibur relies on the existence of a single creator, and that's Alan Davis. Mm-hmm. When you don't have that crazy, confident, kind of cartoony line, but still perfectly proportioned, sort of swoopy 80s hair, sort of, weird surreal art it it loses a certain thing that makes excalibur excalibur until recently but we we can we can get to that well and i think that's because the current run by teeny howard and marcus toe is very strong and it's also very much derived from a love of the davis material it had to win me over and it did it really quick yeah same (laughs) <laughs> I, you know, I, I heard, I, uh, I, I heard the team. I don't want to sidebar too much on this, but, but I, I heard the team, and I was like, oh, 
okay, well, let's let's see how that works. It, you know, will it, is this going to be Excalibur? And pretty quickly, I was like, yeah, it is. Yeah, like the roster made me skeptical, and then I read like the first I read the first couple issues in this in one go, and I was just like, oh yeah, no, this is this is an Excalibur book. Well, so so let's sidebar for just a second. the 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 current The current roster, when you first read it, sounds bananas. Completely Doesn't, insane, yeah. Right. I I mean, I, so I'm looking at it. I say, okay, it's Excalibur. I'm excited. Betsy, great, great. That's a that's a Captain Britain character. Looking for a Captain Brit- Britain character? No. Looking for Nightcrawler? He's available? No. We know we're not going to have Shadow Cat. Okay. Rachel's busy, right? Like, who's going to Rachel, be here? Rachel's busy. Who do we got? Richter. Okay, got nothing against Richter. That's sure. That's, he's like, you know, that's an eighty character. I'll take it. That's right? a call. Apocalypse. Hmm. That I was into. That I thought made sense. I was nodding along. Jubilee. They have a new mutants book. They're not bringing Jubilee into the new mutants book, and they're putting her on Excalibur. Well, to be fair, Jubilee was never a new mutant. I no, mean, no, she's she was in that weird liminal space. She, she wasn't. I mean, she wasn't a new mutant, but Generation X wasn't a new mutant either. If it's going to be the spot, yeah, where no, all that's the true. Young... You, if if Chamber and Mondo are going to be on the new, it's you know you could. I think the bigger issue with Jubilee and the new mutants is that she and Boom Boom are pretty redundant characters. Yeah, you would have to do some work to differentiate. I, I mean, I mean, their personalities are very different, but the vibe is. Similar. And the power set. And the power set. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. the, like they're both sort of mall teens who are now like mall 20-somethings with fireworky powers. And they both rule. I was never a big Jubilee person, but I am warming to her more now. I've come I've come around on Jubilee. Yeah, same. And I but I've always loved Boo Boo, who's a I although I thought she was very dull. In the X Force years, as like Boomer and Meltdown, and all like I'm glad that she's was, back to Boom Boom Basics. That was you more the X Force years. Character. No, that's that's stupid. No, she's not a serious character. But yeah, what what gave me pause was the Rogue and Gambit and Jubilee of it all. Right, I was like, that's the Jim Lee X Men. That's not Excalibur. Right, exactly. Almost immediately, though, it made sense mm-hmm. because it was about how can we use these characters' powers in a way you wouldn't think about. And those three characters all have a close connection with Betsy. I'd also, which yeah, makes it natural. I'd also like to say that that the art doesn't try to ape on uh, Davis. No, but it captures something of the anything can happen. It's not. It's not as cartoony weird. It's not as Monty it's Python. It's not as surreal. Zany. It's and not as zany. I, yeah, I would like to see a little bit more surreality at the edges. But I, what I do really, really like, and I thought this was most evident in 16, the most recent issue, where Megan has a love big it. showing. Yeah, love it. Marcus Toe's figures mm-hmm. are Davis-esque in the way that they are very beautiful, yes. but not inhuman like it's a very they they are stunningly beautiful but feel very tangible like you could touch them that's very well put but still cartoony in a way but still sort of cartoony it's not like phil jimenez's characters who are beautiful but there's nothing cartoony about them Mm -hmm. it's very realism oriented toe's style is a little bit more loose and flowing Mm -hmm. and it's it's evocative of davis in that way but i agree i would like to see Particularly now that we're going to be in Otherworld more, I would like to see more 
craziness in the landscape. But I think we may be getting there. I mean, I, I think that it's we're... harder to have zany Monty Python hijinks when Apocalypse is around. I was literally just about to say that. I think now that Apocalypse is not running the show. Right. I mean, I think we're about to have a cross time taper to rescue Betsy. Like, I think we're about to have a lot of fun. You I'm, know what I mean? I'm, I'm ho- really hoping. I think you're right, and I'm really hoping that you're right because the cross time taper is uh, my fave. It's, it's, it's a high point. Again, this is this is how our, our tastes run parallel, right? Although I will also say, if you'd had Apocalypse around and then suddenly a uh, a dragon from a Nazi alternate dimension who's quite friendly and runs the time displaced train. And, train. and the large uh, reptilian accountant of the uh, extra-dimensional uh, mercenary unit who have been lovers for the last couple episodes suddenly have thousands of their little reptile dragon uh, 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 offspring flying by and having a, uh, apocalypse in the background. That would have been okay. I could have. That gone, would have been fun. I yeah, I think <laughs> I, I'm waiting for the tech nap. I feel yes. like it's, it's got to be only a matter of time before the tech net pop up. And yep. I think that that's going to go a long way. Yep. I, I just, I can feel the tech net like on the horizon. You, they just like, it, it's, you know, there's been, there's been a very strange disturbance in the forest. Yeah. <laughs> it's just sort of it. like, well, Saturnine has a new Captain Britain core that she's a little discontented with time to hire the tech net to fuck something up. Right. Essentially is my sense. So just to just to finish up the the thought, yeah, to go back of like how you broke in, how you, yeah, I'm you know I'm 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 reading along and I'm really digging you know Silvestri's X Men, you know rendition. You know I, I'm 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 reading Claremont X Men for the first time. I'm reading the classic stuff as well, and you know a few months into this, this thing Excalibur drops in, and it's over. I'm done. I, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've officially lost my mind for comic books at this point. Yeah. That, that sword is drawn. You've got war wolves. You've got the X-Men as, as these, you know, in a dream sequence as these movie stars, you've got horror, you've got weirdness. It's genuinely that seems funny. So scary. It is, but it starts so funny. Yeah. That, like, and that is the thing about, about Excalibur is it switches to horror in a flash and yeah. then it goes right page back, page. right back to funny again, and it does it effortlessly. And I was just, I, I, I was, I'm still blown away. Um, and you know, we we can get into individual episodes and things like that, and I'm sh- I'm sure we will. But that was that was the amazing thing. And then you know, in the '90s, essentially, I'll, I'll just say I think they they stopped knowing how to draw comic book pages or something <laughs> like everything was just a pinup poster and incoherent. And, and I didn't even realize until I went back and now I'm in uh, Marvel unlimited and I'm kind of moving my way toward onslaught. I'm in 96. I'm just moving, mm-hmm. you know, I'm reading through. I, I thought I had fallen away because I had outgrown comics. No, I, no, that's I, exactly when it gets weird though. Yeah. I fell away because Excalibur specifically. Yeah, and well, yes, the the Excalibur stuff is. I had fallen away from Excalibur earlier because once Davis was off the book, the second Davis is off, it's honestly it's it's done it's bad. It's done. The Lobdell years are bad. I think the Ellis run has a lot of good moments in it, but the Lobdell stuff, 
before that is honestly just not good. Warren, yeah. Warren Ellis is not exactly my cup of tea either, so... See, he he really is my cup of tea, which has made the last year fraught for oh, me as a consumer. Sure, sure. But... The, the Excalibur stuff, though, I mean, are you, are you thinking uh, maybe the Transmetropolitan and that all that? That's Ellis, isn't it? Yeah, that's not my thing. I but I like him on I like him on superhero books. I I did really enjoy certain things he did with the characters. I liked how he wrote Amanda Sefton. Mm -hmm. I liked how I liked Pete Wisdom. I did. I thought that, you know, as nineties bad boy characters go, I enjoyed him much more than, for example, Gambit. It was at least more coherent than what had come before. It it, it Yeah. It, it definitely feels of a piece. To compare Davis leaves at issue 67, and in issue 68, Lobdell opens with, by the way, Captain Britain was lost in the time stream off-panel right. and is dead now. Right. That's that's literally how the run begins, is Captain Britain is believed dead, and Megan is catatonic. Right. And she remains catatonic for, like, 12 issues. Yep. Or something. Yep. I, I no, it's not, because it's 73 or 74, where basically what he does is, in the span of 10 issues... He apparently kills off Brian, takes Megan off the page, gets rid of Rachel, yep. and brings Brian back as an as unrecognizable character. Right. <laughs> and if you're me and your three favorite characters in Excalibur are gone, are Megan, Rachel, and Kitty. And the other two aren't being written that well. Right. And like, you know, and, and you care about brian if you care about megan because megan cares about brian right. so it's natural to care about and i i have now i've grown since to really love brian as a character but at the time it was sort of more about their relationship being something i was invested in mm -hmm. and yeah if you're reading it and megan and rachel let's say were my favorites because sure. they were and you're just kind of like huh. well what's this book now like why do i care about this and Megan, by the way, when she does recover herself, suddenly becomes a very serious right. 90s kind of character. She's like a, a hot girl who's like a bad bitch. And I'm like, that's not Megan. Right. Like, it's not, at all. you know? At all. And Kurt is not fun anymore. At, like, no one is fun. Kitty is the only character who I think and there's no reason survives for the, it. There's no reason for those two to not go back to the X-Men at this point. There's That's like, the thing. There's right? like 48 X-Men already. Just send them back. Just there. go back home. Like, what are you that invested in living in England? Like, right. I, I don't know. So it, it's it's just weird. And then I thought that the Ellis were really turned that around. So I was very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. But I would agree that there's a very specific Excalibur that is my Excalibur. And it's the Claremont run initially. Yeah. And then Davis coming back for those 20 odd issues from the forties through 67. I think for me, the thing about Ellis, I'm, I've, I've read some of his Excalibur stuff is he, it's, it, he's got a very specific attitude in his writing. Yeah. And that attitude isn't Excalibur, but you know, the thing is I was already gone from comics. Well, that thing is my, my thing was, it was just, it was at least in the same ballpark as Excalibur. Like it was at least a nineties Excalibur that yeah. I could, that I could appreciate if I had to, Whereas the Lovedell Excalibur was, and this was around the same time that they brought Excalibur into the X office, and it was a line-wide imperative to bring all of these books more X-Factor, Excalibur, all of them had to become more aligned with the main titles. 
right. and Excalibur, which, because it has never really been an X-Men book in that way, right. fell apart immediately because you can't force that. You're, well, you're going to be able to explain to me as we as we start to go through Megan and and Brian's relationship and and Megan particularly for this, um, you know how how that um, how that relationship was resolved. So I am interested in knowing. I think I'm a very appropriate guest to discuss a character who's been off the page since around the mid '90s and, <laughs> and is making what we hope is a major resurgence. Because we that's, can only hope, yeah. Because that's that's exactly my reading. You know, I I was I was gone, and mm-hmm. and I was kind of reading my way through because Marvel Unlimited exists. But then I just I saw you know I heard that the House of X was a thing, so I decided to read it. And once again, I was I was immediately in. You know, um, Hoxbox. It's so good. Mind mind blowing. Mind-blowingly good. Um, and and immediately, I I, I will say um, that there's something about that. Uh, what um, you know, Hickman and company were were able to do, but but Hickman in particular, writing House of X, Powers of X, to make it feel like everything that has happened before is a preamble. It's not less important for having been a preamble, but this is where the history really starts and i know that 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 um you know this being comics eventually it gets retconned but this it just feels like um it feels impactful it feels like it matters it feels like it it feels like it matters and it feels as if it it recapitulates everything that came before without getting rid of it and actually manages to elevate it and move it forward. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's just brilliant. Morrison did something a little similar, but what I think is brilliant about this era is it clearly is written by people who love Claremont and love Morrison. Right. And if Morrison was on some level the antithesis to Claremont, this is sort of the synthesis of the two, mm-hmm. those two core runs i haven't read uh, i haven't read morrison um but it's brilliant you should I'm, well, I, I'm the going, omnibus is the omnibus is discounted right now and you should pick it up in it, my opinion it's just a it's just a question of can i can i slog through 98 through when does morrison start 2001 yeah i wouldn't if i were you i'm honestly. probably I would, I, it's getting i would it's skip from really around hard. operation zero tolerance directly to grant morrison that's what i would do if i were you okay Okay. Not to be disrespectful to anybody who wrote in there. There are good stories in the late nineties here and there, mm-hmm. but it is probably qualitatively like the worst period of X-Men comics. It, I'm finding it difficult to read. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's talk <laughs> so about, let's, let's talk Megan. about, ex- why let's do talk you about love Megan. Why did you want to talk about Megan? Well, you know, Give me your Megan feels. Absolutely. Feelings on Megan, all of your feelings. So, I mean, you know, Megan Megan shows up in this book that that I utterly fell in love with, and I already like uh, Nightcrawler. I already like Shadowcat. Okay, um, although I don't, you know, I've just started, so I don't know them that well. And and I'm I'm just immediately fascinated by this this funny, scary book. It's sexy. It's weird. It's extremely horny, um, and it's very it's, horny. It's, it's it's I mean it's 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 extremely horny. Um, the, it's got this boldness. That's so sweet. It's, it's and, very weird. And it's sweet. And, and actually, in, you know, in, in, in that way, 
Megan, and it's very sincere. Yes. It's not, I mean, yes. it's, it's, it's very weird and it, but it's not, it, it's never cynical. It's a really sincere book. The emotions are all there. Um, and it introduced, it's got the cross time caper, which is this massively important and I think underrated element to the so Marvel underrated. universe and the X universe, you know, Claremont, Claremont grafts in the, the Megan and, and Captain Britain because he loves them so much. And he really just introduces this, you know, a book that's been focused mostly on alternate timelines. Now we have to we layer in this idea of alternate realities where you have, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's the next level up on, on dimensions where destiny might be able to see everything that's happening in this timeline, but there's another destiny and there's actually infinite destinies in other places and they are seeing what's happening in those times. It, 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 it starts to break your head a little bit. And, and so Megan is a character who, you know, she only got really one major arc dedicated specifically to her in the Alan Davis runs. Um, it, it was in the second one. She's she's a when folk- she goes to look for her parents. That's correct, yeah. and 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 I want to talk about that a bit later. But she's a focal point in most issues. So she's a character who I think you you would define by two very interesting qualities, especially when taken together. The first one is almost limitless power. In a uh, you know in the X universe, you have um, sort of a trope of overpowered female characters. Claremont loved to yeah. do that. And she stands out even among that. Um, it, she's someone who manifests the power of the earth. It, you, you eventually start to realize. Like there are these little places where they just layer it in. And it's such a slow creep too. It's like a slow build. It's not like the Phoenix where like Jean jumps out of the bay like I'm the Phoenix now. Megan has to learn her power slowly over time yeah and and it, it happens slowly but then all of a sudden it happens all at once uh, yeah. ex- example she's basically going along as a metamorph and sometimes she'll turn into a, a werewolf or sometimes she'll become a sea creature if she needs to do that or you know she's swimming with the dolphin so she looks like a dolphin That's cute. and then about 20 issues in galactus wants to take phoenix back to do something or other and suddenly she's like oh all right well now we need somebody to fight galactus i guess i'm the size of galactus now yeah and that's what actually shuts the thing down is phoenix realizes oh um you're actually draining the entire earth here this is (laughs) this is going to be a problem but but they they do these there they do these things to but i mean by the the new and very helpful hickman definition of omega She's an Omega mutant. Well, I think that what they've done that's very clever as sort of a cheat, because she's not an Omega-level mutant, and it would be hard to retcon her into one, but her powers are so vast that it's hard to not... Is now that Teeny Howard in Excalibur 16 has finally confirmed, after decades, that Megan has genuine otherworld fey heritage. Sure. You can say that a lot of Megan's power, perhaps is magical in origin, which enables her to be a mutant who is as powerful as the Omegas without being, quote-unquote, an Omega-level mutant. She's sort of, she's both. Did Omega come through in the Hickman run? Omega has been around since the 90s, but it's never been especially clear what it means, and it's never been well-defined. It's been very inconsistent. Like, it used to be that 
Emma and Betsy and Jean and Xavier were all classified as like Omega class telepaths or whatever. But Hickman is making it very specific that there are a limited number of Omega level mutants and that Omega means something specific. And in Hoxpox, he sort of redefines exactly that what was, it means and gives you a list of them. That was my that was my introduction. Yeah. And she's not on the list, but by that by the definition, it's it's hard to imagine somebody whose whose metamorph powers Right. I think that her ability to draw on the earth yeah. is probably a magical power and that her empathic metamorphs thing is her mutant power, which makes it fair. You can sort of hand wave it. The point uh, notwithstanding, she she's a, uh, a character with almost limitless power. Yeah, which I think is part of why writers after Davis have been unsure what to do with her. Because right. what Davis really understood and what Claremont captured in those early Excalibur stories, but I do think of Davis as the essential Megan writer, both in Captain Britain and in Excalibur, is she is limited by the fact that she is fundamentally a good and kind and earnest and simple person. And that's the second quality, right? Right. Absolutely agree when you juxtapose those two things together she is somebody who is a cosmic level power but only becomes a cosmic level power when the people around her need one <laughs> right when people need her to be something she can be it which makes her the right compliment to brian because captain britain's power is derived from self-confidence, right? right? And Megan's power is derived from the confidence of the people around her. They're sort of simpatico in that way. They fuel each other. She's also an interesting compliment, and they, they do this overtly in the Excalibur run all the time to Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is somebody who would be the most powerful character on any book as long as phoenix isn't around but phoenix happens to be around <laughs> phoenix happens to be on the book and rachel is interesting because the phoenix is intrinsic to her and so she's not corrupted by its power right. in the same way but throughout there's always a concern that she might be and there's never outside of the brief moment in the inferno right where megan is overcome by again because she's so open and empathic is overcome by external forces that are demonic. But when it's just Megan doing her thing, there is never a fear that Megan is going to be corrupted by her power. No. It just isn't possible. She doesn't have it in her. And I think I think that, that the innate goodness that you talked about um, is sort of intertwined with what I see as a, a confused sense of agency. Absolutely, yeah that she she appears now and 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 I'm going to ask you about this in a little while but she appears to have overcome it but in 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 the the run she's most associated with in Excalibur her history of trauma which kind of trickles out over time and her power set are conflated they they so she subsumes her sense of self into the expectations of others we've discussed before you know if they need a powerful character she'll be that but it's also whatever it is that they that she senses they see in her she becomes. she becomes yeah so if brian yells at her which he does all too frequently she she 
kind of starts turning back into the gremlin that she into was. Into the gremlin. Right? Yeah. And it's ex- and it's exacerbated. Exacerbated might not be the right word, but uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> By the fact that she's a very pure-intentioned character. She's perhaps the most good, quote-unquote, good um, and unselfish character in the I, I'm trying entire to, X universe. I'm trying yeah, to think. Of, I'm say. trying to think of another one. Colossus in the '80s is the only one in the '70s and '80s is the only one who comes close. But by the time he joins Excalibur in the '90s, oh, he's become a much darker. Character. I saw the way he joined Excalibur. That's kind of one of the reasons I don't like Ellis. It's like I'm like he would no matter how damaged he'd gotten. That's not how he enters a situation. Colossus is a character no one's known what to do with since about 1990, so that's just yeah, um, that's just an unfortunate fact. I would like to to congratulate him on the now canonical uh, giant man thing that Wolverine has confirmed. Yes, good for him. Good for him. Colossus has a big everything. A giant-sized man thing, yeah. But that is why when he does join Excalibur, he and Megan feel drawn to each other, because they are fundamentally earnest characters who are altruistic at core. The thing about Megan that's difficult is she is traumatized in a very specific way, which is that her parents were afraid mm-hmm. of her. And she could, and she knew the it. people around her were afraid of her. And she knew and that. And because of her power from infancy, the more people said that she was a monster, the more she literally became one. Yeah. So she was locked away in the caravan in a truck. Mm-hmm. and was only allowed to watch television, and her entire sense of self is derived from pop culture. She can't read. She can't write. She doesn't have any of that. And then after the Jasper's Warp, she loses her family right. and can't find them again. And never does. And never does, ever. But because of her power, she's the only person who remembers the Jasper's Warp. Right. Because her fluid form enables her to resist reality alteration which becomes important when jamie braddock pops up as a reality warfer later Mm -hmm. in excalibur but more importantly she's completely unmoored has nothing has no ability to survive in the world because she has no money no understanding of money no skill she can use can't read can't write doesn't really know how to interact with people and is very childlike Right. And so when she meets Brian, there is an inequality in their relationship. Yeah. That is difficult to set aside. And it's her it's it's her primary relationship by a long shot. Yeah. Throughout her publication history up until today. Up through the present, right. Right. And on a on a number of levels, it's an unhealthy one. Absolutely, especially early in Excalibur when he's a drunk. In ways that and and I think this is is what's most interesting to me, and what what I think I responded to even when I was a kid reading it was the 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 narrative is very aware of that. Yes, it's 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 not a oh you know he's this was just the time and the people who were writing it didn't realize you know the they don't see it through the lens that we do and they they were they were making bad. Uh, assumptions based on the social mores, which you do see certainly in in comic books all the time. Uh, we sort of started this this podcast talking about that a little bit. Yeah. But this wasn't that. This was, I mean, it was it was very foregrounded. Uh, Brian is is uh, is cheating on Megan. He's he's emotionally abusive to her. He's almost physically abusive to her when he's drunk. I mean, he sort of 
He throws things. Mm -hmm. He literally cheats on her, which is wild to see in a superhero comic. I said this in the Brian episode and the episode on Saturnine. It feels as though Claremont and Davis set up the Courtney Ross storyline specifically to make you question the relationship between Brian and Megan and whether it's appropriate and whether he is taking advantage of her Mm -hmm. and whether it's a good thing for her to be in this relationship. Because over the course of the Captain Britain story, she blossoms from her gremlin form into a beautiful woman. But the implication is that she turns into the beautiful woman that Brian would want. Exactly. Which is a a shapely blonde. Not but not just a shapely blonde, but but cartoonishly so almost. Yeah, oh stunningly beautiful like like a painting. Yeah. Yeah, like like this if if this is if this is what you know, if she's if she's becoming just what Brian wants, it is a a hyper sexualized manifestation. Yeah. And drawn as such. But at the same time, she's very childlike and very innocent and naive. And immediately he goes from completely ignoring her and her yeah, being one of... Yeah, complete ambivalence to this weird gremlin in his house. Right. To like, let's go on vacation and start making out. Well, well, Brian Brian not wanting to have weird things in his house is sort of an ongoing... It's a theme, yeah. ...theme. It, it continues all the way to, I think, the point where the tech net is staying and he gets so mad he about that and other things that he, he breaks Kurt's leg. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> well, so, that, but that's about Megan actually. And that's about Megan, of course. And, yeah. and, and, sh- but she immediate, and we need to talk about that, but she, Oh yeah, for sure. As soon as, as soon as that changes, he immediately is like, Oh, well, hello, you're all right to stay in my, as a matter of fact, go on vacation with me. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's more it's, than a little and weird. It's fucked up. Yeah. yeah. And it's fucked up. What happens over the course of Excalibur, the the Claremont and Davis runs Mm -hmm. in particular, that I think is very smart, is Brian is portrayed as a bad boyfriend. Yeah. He is not a good boyfriend to her, and their relationship is unhealthy. And you spend the Claremont run in particular thinking, why won't she just dump him and get with Kurt, who's infatuated with her and sees her as a human being deserving of respect and et cetera, et cetera. And respect, yeah, and respects her, that's, which is key because Brian And sees doesn't. her naivete as an asset, whereas Brian sees it as embarrassing. Right. Kurt is touched by how simple, it sounds like I'm calling her dumb, and she's not dumb. She's uneducated, yeah. but she's not stupid. Simple in the sense of she has very simple desires. She has a desire to please the people around her to be happy, to frolic with animals in nature, right. to do good things for people and to see children happy. Like she just wants everyone to have a nice time. And that's really all she wants is to be desired and to make people happy and to lead a happy life herself. And Kurt finds that really lovely. He does. I would add I would add a couple things to that. Uh, first, I would say, while the way that she is in the world can present as childlike, and in some ways is, and because, and, and that's, and that is enhanced by the fact that she hasn't been educated, so she doesn't, you know, she is often seen sitting in front of the TV, you know, she doesn't, she's not literate, and those sorts of things. She is actually emotionally mature. 
Yes, and very, very emotionally intelligent in the way none of the other characters are. Uh, or at least, I would say Kurt is also is equally uh, or, or close to as emotional. Close to, close to, but he's not as intuitive as she is. And and she, you, they deliberately over the course of dozens of episodes show us again and again her responding to Kurt in moments of celebration, or you know when when she when when she's looking for um, when she's looking for friendship or when she's looking for comfort, or you know there are a lot of times where the the gang will just have to go somewhere, and the two characters that can fly are carrying yeah uh, are carrying the ones who can't. And it's always Megan carrying Kurt. Yeah. And Brian is not the emotionally mature one. No. In, in that way, he he is he is the childish one because he's the one who's carrying on yes. and throwing things and, and 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 so forth and drinking himself half to death. And he can't. And, and yeah, and yeah. he can't handle he can't handle the grief of his sister dying. He thinks right. and and so on and so on and so on. She is very selfless. And her feature, or her her power set, um, kind of entwines in, in in such a way that her selflessness can become a selflessness. If you yeah, if you a see complete what I'm liability. Yeah, it can erase her selfhood. And that's the other thing she wants. She wants everyone to get along. She wants to be loved. She wants to be. She wants people to be attracted to her, and she wants to be attractive to whoever. She's around, but she also wants to know what she wants. And she know and and she knows that. She has to train her she defines herself through other people's expectations as a default that she learned as a child through trauma. And she has to train herself not to. And we get to watch her train herself not mm-hmm. to. Because the mirror doesn't get to look at the mirror, right? And she spends her life as the mirror and it bothers her. All the time. And that's fascinating. And that's why it's beautiful in the issue later in the Davis run where she and Rachel have gone on this long quest to try and find her family. Mm-hmm. And she finally meets the Nuri, this yes, this magical being that takes her to a higher consciousness and she witnesses her true form for the first time. But she witnesses it because Rachel shows it to her. Yes. It's, and the, the, the exactly. narration says, Rachel becomes a mirror. Yes. She allows Megan to see through her eyes. And for Megan, who has always been a mirror, to perceive herself, is that's the triumphant moment. And the thing about Megan and Rachel, who are the other two characters that I would say are constantly put in parallel in that Excalibur run, to the point where in the Crosstown Caper, like, they accidentally swap costumes. Like, and things almost because, identities. Yeah. Rachel is so tightly wound because she's controlling this cosmic power within her at all times, and because the Phoenix is suppressing all of her memories of the days of future past, Mm -hmm. because she can't process it. Megan, meanwhile, has no psychic defenses. Rachel says this at one point. She enters Megan's mind and realizes Megan never developed the normal psychic blocks that people put in through social interaction with others as they grow up. And so for Megan, she is an open vessel you can just pour things into her she is a raw nerve you barely need to be telepathic to read her Mm -hmm. and that makes the two of them you know at one point around the inferno when megan's powers have gone a little unstable and she's really actively transforming based on what other people around her think yeah i want to talk about that adopting their traits when she 
sort of morphs into Rachel, it causes a gigantic feedback thing. Yep. But over the course of the story, it becomes clear that Rachel is the only one who understands what it is to be someone containing all of this power and in touch with something higher and cosmic and strange mm-hmm. and not knowing where it ends and you begin. And they develop a friendship that's really quite beautiful. So one of the things that I'm definitely going to want to talk about, just to put my cards on the table, I was, uh, and to an extent, am not a, a, a big fan of Megan and Brian. Mm. Well, we'll get there. Yes. And and this is, this is one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk to you about Megan in particular, because I know that it's at least among the hetero relationships, you know, within X-Men, it's, it's your, your tops. So I want, and I left before you left before they fixed it. Yeah. And so I, I, (laughs) I I want to understand because, you know, my, my thing about Megan is she is a character who I think that if Alan Davis had stayed long enough may have come into her power. Yeah. And for, for a character like that, it's notable. And I'll, I, I want to go through a few of these uh, of these specific storylines, maybe after character file or whatever. But it's notable that when she has leaps forward and when she has real spotlight on her, it's notably when Brian is is not around. And the clear implication to me is that he holds her back. There's well, and and that for I think that she is a character who still hasn't come into her full power. Ah, so we'll get there. We'll get there because I would agree, but we're a lot closer than we were. And I think that the Brian and Megan relationship actually is one of the things that is repaired. It, like in terms of the end game Excalibur, which is not very good. Right. Their relationship, I think, resolves really well. And then the stuff that followed it yeah. in later stories is fantastic. That's I, and I read a little bit of that. I read uh, I read the MI thirteen. I suggested you read the MI thirteen annual. And I read that, and that's that's interesting stuff. We should talk about. Yeah, we'll get into that when I. So, I just want to sort of I guess say that my other thing with with Megan was just I love magic stuff in sure. comic books, and since the X Men was my focus, I mean I love Juliana Rasputina for the same reason. Like mm-hmm. it was sort of this of and Amanda Sefton. They were these mystical characters that were going in and out of the book. Danny Moonstar, these mm-hmm. characters who were connected also to something else. Storm had a little bit of it too. Megan was just this fascinating character because they call her a mutant. Sure. But they don't really know anything about her. And they just kind of assume she's a mutant. But as Excalibur goes on in the Cross Time Caper, when they go to that medieval world where yep. she meets the fairies and things like that, you get more and more hints that there's more to her, that she is one of the fae folk and I was fascinated and wanted to know. And it's only really now that we're finally getting answers to those questions, which I'm very, very excited about. But yeah, so what I'd like to do now, because this is a character a lot of people don't know very well because she's been off the page for the most part for the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. I would like to do the Cerebro character file on Megan and give new readers and listeners who might not be new but just weren't Excalibur heads like us a rundown of this character and her really interesting arc and then we will come back here and talk about these exact themes that you're touching on great once everybody has a little more context first we'll talk about your favorite storylines 
and then we'll jump into Brian and Megan's relationship, Megan's character arc, and the things that I think were done really well post-David. Great. So we'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Megan Braddock, known for most of her publication history only as Megan, but given the maiden name Puchanu and codename Gloriana over 20 years after her introduction, is a founding member of the British superhero team Excalibur and the wife of Brian Braddock, formerly Captain Britain. Introduced in 1983 as part of the critically acclaimed new run of Captain Britain, Megan was created by writer Alan Moore and artist Alan Davis, and is initially presented as a strange bat-like gremlin creature. Over the course of the Captain Britain ongoing by Davis and Jamie Delano, she transforms into a beautiful woman and becomes Brian's love interest. Megan makes her first appearance in the famous Jasper's Wolf storyline by Alan Moore. A bit of a gossip, she smokes a cigarette while telling another mutant subjugated by the new regime about rumors of Captain Britain. Under writer Jamie Delano, the character reappears several issues later, after reality has been restored. Lost and confused, she's befriended two local children, Mickey and Josie Scott, who bring her food and try to help her through the rages she experiences beneath the full moon. Brian Braddock, the hero Captain Britain, battles the apparent monster during one of these episodes, and young Mickey is killed by accident in the crossfire. Brian's devastated, and goes to Mickey's parents to apologize and explain what happened, only to be met by Megan, who's similarly guilt-ridden. The Scots forgive both superbeings, and Megan explains that she is from a community of Romani travelers, but lost her family when she was swept up in Jasper's Wharf. Brian is astonished that Megan can remember the wharf at all, when most of the population has forgotten it, and offers to try to help her find her people. In the meantime, he invites her to stay with him at Braddock Manor. Also living at the manor are Brian's twin sister Betsy, a psychic secret agent, and her friend and colleague Allison Double, a blind seer who perceives auras. She says that Megan is beautiful, which confuses everyone, as the creature they see is a gnarled, twisted thing, covered in fur and monstrous in appearance. It becomes clear that Megan has led a very sheltered life, kept secluded in a caravan by her parents because of her looks. She has had limited interaction with other people, and knows the outside world mostly through television, with which she is obsessed. She's delighted to now know Brian, a person she has seen on the telly. Megan quickly grows attached to Brian and is eager to please him, but he seems to regard her mostly as a curiosity. When the government agency RCX approaches Brian and Betsy about the Warpies, children turned into superhuman mutates by Jasper's Warp, Megan discovers some of them locked in RCX's van. This makes her recall her own traumatic childhood. As an infant, her metamorphic mutant power, already active, caused her to grow fur to compensate for the winter cold. Her parents feared her a changeling, a wolf child, but her mother begged for mercy and hid her from the rest of their clan. Rumor quickly spread, and the other travelers in the caravan imagined her as a monster. Because her power is empathic, she quickly began shifting into the creature they described. We learn Allison Double has explained all of this to Megan, who did not understand it. Now she's distressed by the confinement of the Warpies and frees them from the van. They attack the manor to her dismay, and she leaps into battle to defend her new friends, finding herself transformed. She becomes a fiery, ethereal being, and the most beautiful woman Brian has ever seen. RCX tries to take her into custody, but Brian protects her. Later, glued to the television as usual, Megan sees a news report about Brian's older brother Jamie, a famous race car driver, who has disappeared in Africa. He calls the manor for help, and Brian and Megan travel to rescue him. Megan's surprised to discover she instinctively understands the local language through empathy, and this helps them find the compound where Jamie's being held by the evil Dr. Crocodile. When they learn that Jamie is actually a heinous criminal, guilty of human trafficking among other atrocities, Brian leaves him behind to suffer whatever fate awaits him. Distraught, Brian asks Megan to journey with him for a while before they return home, and the two share a kiss. Their romance blossoms as they travel the world together, and they ultimately wind up in the Russian tundra, where Megan's ancestors supposedly live. 
Note that the Rusca Roma are a different Romani group from Romani Shawls, the British minority with which Megan will later be associated. During a heated kiss, Megan finds herself transformed into a reptilian monster, and when she shakes off this influence, she encounters the hideous snake woman who claims to be Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga greets Megan as a daughter and says they are of the same blood, introducing her to other monsters she calls Megan's sisters. The snake women attempt to devour Brian, and Megan, enraged, suddenly feels ancient magical knowledge unlock in her mind. Chanting a spell, she channels elemental energy and burns Baba Yaga and the serpent women alive. When Brian and Megan return home, they find that in Brian's absence, Betsy has taken his place as Captain Britain. He's angry and abandons his post entirely. He and Megan retire together to a lighthouse on the coast, where they live happily for five months. He's called back into action when he feels a psychic distress call from Betsy. The villain Slaymaster, one of Brian's enemies, has nearly killed her and torn her eyes out, and Brian arrives just in time to save her life and kill Slaymaster. Megan's upset that he left her behind, and makes him promise not to do that again. Brian resumes his role as Captain Britain, and Megan officially becomes his partner in superheroism in addition to his lover. She also begins learning to read and write, as she never had a real education when she was hidden away in the caravan. The Captain Britain ongoing was cancelled there in 1986, and over the next couple years, Brian and Megan made a few cameo appearances in X-Men stories after Chris Claremont brought Betsy to the team as the hero Psylocke. In 1988, special issue Excalibur of the Sword is drawn, we find Brian and Megan in the aftermath of Betsy's apparent death alongside the other X-Men in the event Fall of the Mutants. Brian, who has a drinking problem, is completely lost to it in his violent grief, and is verbally abusive to Megan when she attempts to comfort him. The former X-Men Nightcrawler and Shadowcat, recuperating from injuries on Muir Island, intercede and sober Brian up, and the four heroes rescue Rachel Summers, the former X-Men Phoenix, from the extra-dimensional creatures called the Warwolves. After this adventure, they decide to create a new superhero team, Excalibur, to carry on Xavier's dream in the absence of the X-Men. This leads into an Excalibur ongoing series later that year by Chris Claremont and Alan Davis. Through various creative team changes, Megan would remain a primary cast member in that book for the next 10 years. In the first issue, she invites the new team to live in the lighthouse without asking Brian, who's irked by her presumption. He continues to drink heavily and begins an emotional affair with his ex-girlfriend, Courtney Ross. Feeling rejected, Megan is drawn to Nightcrawler, who's infatuated with her, and the two nearly give in to temptation, but she stops herself, racked with guilt, before she kisses him. Keeping their relationship platonic, Megan confides in Kurt about her unstable powers, which are activated by the thoughts of people around her and aren't quite in her control. When the group follows Rachel to New York City and is thrust into the 1989 event Inferno, Megan is immediately overcome by the demonic energies infusing the city. Corrupted into the Goblin Princess, she makes Brian her slave, revealing she's aware of his infidelity with Courtney and proclaiming she will never let him stray from her again. When their minds are restored, she's ashamed of her behavior and though Brian insists they weren't themselves, she isn't so sure. Exploring New York City on her own, she freely transforms based on the thoughts and desires of the people around her, but finds the willpower to say no when a man tries to pressure her into a sexual situation. In the event called the Cross-Time Caper, where Excalibur travels the multiverse, Megan particularly enjoys a world of magic and fantasy where the fairy folk seem to welcome her as one of their own. Her travels in this period make her feel more assured as a superhero and help her repair her relationship with Brian. Claremont and Davis left the book not long after this, but Davis would return as both writer and artist in issue 42. Early in his run, Brian overhears Kurt murmuring Megan's name in his sleep and, aware of the chemistry between them, assumes they're having an affair. He gets into a fistfight with Kurt so extreme he breaks Kurt's leg, and Megan stops them. She's devastated by the violence, but also by Brian's apparent belief that he owns her. Needing space, she leaves the team to go on a journey with Rachel, with whom she's grown close. Rachel agrees to help Megan learn more about her heritage, and the two begin traveling the continent. 
Following various tales of Romani travelers, they eventually hear a rumor about a mystical being hidden in a caravan. Believing this is an old story about Megan, they pursue the lead, but instead discover an ancient being called the Neri, who has been imprisoned and exploited and is now dying. The Neri takes Megan to a higher astral plane called the Ultra and reveals her true form, in which she looks much more fairy-like, and her powers are heightened. He tells Megan she is not destined to find her parents yet, and then he dies. Upon her return to Excalibur, Megan proves integral to foiling Merlin's evil scheme. The team learns the ancient sorcerer had maneuvered Excalibur together in the first place as part of a plan to defeat his enemy Necrom, and their lighthouse is actually a nexus point for the energy matrix of Otherworld. To prevent Merlin from manipulating them further and deny him access to the matrix, Megan uses her newly enhanced powers to destroy the lighthouse and shatter the nexus entirely. The team moves to Braddock Manor, but their housewarming party is disrupted by Jamie Braddock, now a reality-warping evil mutant, who has teamed up with the evil Satyr 9, a dimensional counterpart of Courtney Ross. Satyr 9 reveals that she had murdered and replaced Courtney some time ago, and it was she who had the affair with Brian. She mind-controls him into her sex slave, and lets Jamie use his powers to deal with the rest of Excalibur. Megan's fluid nature makes her inherently resistant to Jamie's reality warp, as she was with Jim Jaspers, and she defeats him single-handedly. When Satyr 9 orders Brian to kill Megan, he snaps out of her control, and the two team up to drive off their enemies. Brian then becomes obsessed with finding Satyr 9 and avenging Courtney's murder, and Megan is hurt by his single-minded neglect of their relationship. Taking Kurt's advice, Brian goes on holiday with Megan, and the two rekindle their romance. Brian proposes, and Megan tearfully accepts, but their happiness is interrupted by the apparent loss of Brian's powers. Megan is disquieted, and after Brian's powers are restored, she explains that the energy aura she sees around him is part of what attracts her to him. When he protests that exterior appearances are not everything, she asks whether he would love her if she still looked like the creature she was when they met. Before they can address this new wrinkle in their relationship, they are called to accompany Rachel to her dystopian future timeline, where they learn that, at least in the world of the days of future past, they are destined to marry and have children. This was Alan Davis's last Excalibur story, and the next issue by Scott Lobdell opens with an abrupt new status quo. Brian has been lost in the time stream on the way back from the future, and Megan is catatonic from the stress of losing him. After spending weeks reaching out to Brian with her empathic abilities, Megan senses he's connected to Rachel, who eventually switches places with him in the time stream to allow him to return. Brian comes home changed, traumatized by his experience and calling himself Britannic. Their roles reversed, it's now Megan who must help Brian acclimate to the wider world again. She also discovers that her intense use of her powers to locate him has caused him to evolve again, and she's now able to affect the world around her more fully by communing with the elements. Under new writer Warren Ellis, Brian is restored to his old self, and Megan completes her literacy courses. The book is then taken over by Ben Robb, and Brian loses his powers in a confrontation with the dragons of the Crimson Dawn. Don't worry about it. Needing some time alone to adjust to this, Brian takes a leave of absence from the team, and the two postpone their wedding. Megan is understanding, but finds herself attracted in his absence to their new teammate, Colossus. She initially believes she's reading Colossus's attraction to her, but his feelings are purely platonic, and she's left embarrassed after she confronts him. When Brian returns, he's still powerless, but Megan doesn't care. She's missed him terribly, and she's eager to marry him. They are wed in the final issue of Excalibur in 1998, and the team disbands. In a 2001 Excalibur miniseries by returning writer Ben Robb, Megan helps Brian regain his powers and take the throne of Avalon. From here, the characters are mostly retired for a while, making cameo appearances befitting their new status as cosmic beings. In the 2005 company-wide event House of M, Brian and Megan are alerted to the reality cancer the Scarlet Witch is causing, an attempt to stop it before the multiverse is threatened. Ultimately, Megan apparently sacrifices her life to seal the rift and save all creation. She next appears in 2008 in Paul Cornell's series Captain Britain and MI-13, 
where after 25 years of publication, she has given the maiden surname Kuchanu, emphasizing her Romanishal heritage. When Brian faces off against the demon Plotka, who grants desires, he's stunned to be reunited with Megan. As Plotka's deceptions begin to unravel, Brian realizes he's living in a dream, and assumes Megan is also part of the illusion. She is actually the real Megan, who's been lost between dimensions since House of M, but Brian's belief she isn't real interacts with her empathic power, causing her to fade away. When the dream corridor collapses, she's sent falling to the splinter realms into hell. She reappears in the final arc of the book, where she's held hostage by Dr. Doom as bait for Brian. Underestimated, she manages to escape and helps Brian defeat Dracula. It rules. MI-13 is great. The two are blissfully reunited, and an annual issue that ends the series reveals what had happened to Megan in Hell. Embracing her anger, she began influencing the demons around her and amassed a conquering army. Over time, her hope that she might be reunited with Brian began to infect the demons with positive emotions they'd never felt before, and they hailed her as Gloriana, their queen. Megan helped the demons establish a new realm, called Elysium, and then battled her way through the dimensions to return to her love. The characters then largely retired again, turning up now and then for cameo appearances. It's established that she's the headmistress of Braddock Academy, Britain's premier school for superheroes, and she occasionally assists Brian and Betsy in their respective adventures. Brian and Megan have a daughter, Margaret, called Maggie, who displays superhuman mutant intelligence from infancy. Megan adores being a mother, but is nervous about raising a child smarter than herself. After many years in the background, Megan is returning to prominence again in Teeny Howard's new volume of Excalibur, where Betsy replaces Brian as Captain Britain, and a mostly reformed Jane claims the throne of Avalon in Otherworld. After Brian takes on a new role as Captain Avalon, sworn sword of the Braddock family, Megan becomes the kingdom's court sorceress, Lady Gloriana. It is confirmed, at long last, that she is partially of fairy descent, a creature of Otherworld with innate magical power in addition to her mutant gifts. With her sister-in-law Betsy lost in the multiverse after the event Ten of Swords, Megan sets out on adventures once more, leaving Brian at court to watch the baby. X-Men, X-Men! Before we jump into my Brian and Megan Braddock shit manifesto, live journal style, <laughs> that's for the old heads. No, can't wait, can't wait. I would like to talk about your favorite storylines and the things that really make you passionate about the character, because I know that relationship is not the thing that does. So I'd love for you to just sort of take it away and we can chat about your favorite stuff. Yeah, I'd love to talk about some of these things. But I will say this. I think that when you have a toxic relationship, which I think we both agree is what it was in early Excalibur, deliberate mm -hmm. as a deliberate choice, I think it is it, it is interesting to see um to see the the relationship repair in ways as long as they are ways that that are um that are healthy i think that it's important and i'm sure that's the point you're going to get to 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 remember that megan also gets to choose who she wants to be with and and yes. and it's and it's an interesting choice to say this was a toxic relationship but now it's a healthy one and it's interesting to say, uh, as as long as you don't, as long as you don't justify the behavior that was precisely and right. and 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 discount and discount what it was, which which they weren't doing even back in the day. It's just that it was all very much leading to this is a person who really needs to probably be uh, on her own, or at least find somebody who would be more more healthy for her. I was, uh, you know, I was a uh, on team Kagan Mert. What would we call right. it? Right, Kagan and Kurt. That doesn't yeah. really no, go together too well. But, but um, I, you know, I I was on that team. 
reading back through it, that that's clearly not what's healthy. Yeah, I, I would agree that it, that's that's not a better option because Kurt puts her on a pedestal in a different way. You know what I mean? That's accurate. And she's also somebody who just is very aware that she doesn't know who she is and, and meeting other people's expectations is what's needed. She, she To me, she feels it felt like an arc that was heading toward her um, finding herself you know, in herself and, and not, and not having relationships to find her. So to, mm-hmm. to see that it's landed, you know, and I'm, I'm reading, uh, Teeny's, uh, Teeny Howard's excellent Excalibur run. And, and Megan is a tertiary character who's sort of starting to show up in, in recent episodes as, as a more major, uh, supporting. I'm role. hoping she'll like join the team for real. Well, really you, you, you desperately need, want that. You, you really want to have some OG Excalibur people on your Excalibur. You thing. do. And if you can't have Kate and Rachel, cause they're busy and Kurt, presumably there are plans for elsewhere. And Brian can't be on the team full time because right. it right. would undermine Betsy a little bit. Megan's the one, right? Yep. And they do, you know, they, they do seem like they have, uh, a, a, a healthy relationship. So I'm interested in hearing that. But I, but, but I'll go through some of the the uh, some of my favorite storylines. Yeah, the my, classic stuff. That my you favorite, love. my favorite moments dealing with Megan. And I think I'm going to have to start with that X Men Annual, the one where this this weird looking orange ape creature named Horde kidnaps one the X Men. Yeah. One off villain. He brings all the X Men to uh, his citadel, and he makes them go. And get this this power source that's not, that's not really defined. And um, this is the moment where we find out that a single drop of Wolverine's blood will bring him back. Um, <laughs> it, it kind of sets him on that course, which is great. Uh, first Wolverine story I ever read. It's sort of a Wolverine-centered one. And Megan's there. And what's interesting is the Citadel, what it does is it, it tempts everybody with what they most want. And some of those things are really interesting and it's great character moments. You really like, it, it gives you something on Havoc that's sort of central to him even today. Um, you know, it, 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 it establishes, um, it establishes Yukio and, and Aurora as Yeah. As definitely a romantic. Definitely lovers. Definitely. It, yeah. uh, um, you know, as much as he could do in 1987, it's like they're having sex. Just FYI, yeah, he the, couldn't get. And I also love it for Betsy. If you look oh, at yeah. her trajectory in the current run of Excalibur, because that is the issue where it's revealed that Betsy's heart's desire is to tear off her own skin and be made of metal. Yes. So that she can't be ever hurt again. And so that she can be a warrior and no one will treat her as a delicate thing because she's a soldier and she's a warrior like her brother, which is a very fascinating beat when you get to where she is now. And it absolutely sets her on, on the course for the rest of, of for her. Yeah. For her the character. 90s stuff. All of it really. Uh, and right up, to, right up to, till to, now. To, to date. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's my favorite moment actually of, of the whole thing. But when she tears her skin off and she reveals that, that she, and, and, and by the way, just as an aside, she must be so jealous of Husk. If that's her heart desire. Yeah, right. If that's her dream, Husk, <laughs> Husk literally just does that. She, yeah. The first time she saw Husk, she's just like, God she's damn She's like, it. oh, God, that's the power I wanted. Right. Okay. So, but, but when she does that, she is leaving a shared. And dream. then Husk hooks up with Warren. Right. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that might even slightly justify the Husk-Warren thing a little bit. I'll have to think about this in a husk episode. Let's not get off on a husk tangent, but I'm sorry. Continue. We're I just finding, had a no. light bulb go off over my head. We're finding a unified theory. Uh, but, but 
but she what she does she does that to abandon a shared dream which is sort of a regression to the we're all living together you know alan you know the, the captain britain era in braddock manner yeah in braddock manner but what's fascinating to me about that is it really megan barely gets a line in this you, you see her using some energy powers you, you can tell that she's pretty powerful she does some she does some things that show that she can fly she has strength but when it comes time to be tempted by her heart's desires, she's not actually offered anything. Right. She's offered Brian's. Yeah. And I just, you know, reading back through it, I'm like, wow, that is telling. It's so telling to what's going on here. And Brian doesn't, you know, Brian doesn't think about it for a second. Of course you'd want to be married to me. Right. Of course Megan's heart's desire is whatever Brian wants. And it sort of is. Yeah, that's that's accurate. It's very telling of the character's mental at that point in her character arc. And now you might say that Megan just actually does want to be with Brian. Shouldn't she be allowed to? But, you know, here's the thing. We start to get, we get a lot of indications that that's not entirely true. There are a lot of little asides right. that Megan makes where, where he's like, well, I'm trying not to come off as a pompous buffoon. And she's just like, well, that's what you do, dear. It's like this old married couple that is, that, that is together, but secretly she can't stand. Like, you know, like, like <laughs> well, will you stop doing that? Great. And she wants him to be perfect, but he isn't. I kind of wonder, though, because let me go to one of the all time great. It's Inferno. Yeah. They fly across the Atlantic. She gets to New York City. She hasn't even crossed airspace. And she's immediately like, I'm fully evil. She's evil <laughs> immediately. She just starts vibing with the Inferno and he's immediately evil. There is no... Walks up to Nasir. Yes, take me. I love the idea of being evil. And Nasir says, and actually, this is a very telling moment for Megan. Nasir says, this will hurt about transforming says, her. And Megan says, I don't mind. Yep. And that is... I mean, it, it is her darkest self, right? The Goblin Princess. But it's also, it's her darkest self because it's her completely giving herself over to the desires of the men around her. And I think that what is really notable is one of the first really big character beats for Megan is right after that storyline. Yeah. When she is, it's not an Alan Davis issue, unfortunately. It's a film. I mean, it's, and it's, it's perfectly good, but it's just, when it's not Alan Davis, you're like, ugh. She's wandering Manhattan. That's exactly where I want to go own. next. Go, go. Yeah. Take so it. you you want me to go? So no, do it. She wanders around Manhattan and she doesn't really know what she's doing and she doesn't have any money. And she just starts subconsciously because her powers are kind of on the fritz, transforming herself to match anyone who she starts interacting with. Yep. So she begins changing race. She Her hair color changes. She's whoever she's around. She's whoever she's around. And she befriends these teens who mm -hmm. take her shopping. And then she meets this guy and he's really into her. And yep. she is flattered by the attention. She goes dancing with him. Whatnot. And then he tries to force himself on her a little bit in a mm -hmm. way that she's not comfortable with. And she says no. Yep. And it's this very striking moment because up until that point, Megan has never said no. Yep. And she thinks to herself, I'm letting him influence me, but I don't want this. And yep. she refuses and she pushes him away. It's a very important moment for the character. And I think that what's really interesting then is then she goes and joins a basketball game yep. with a bunch of black people who are playing basketball. And she 
as she walks up to the court, she becomes a black woman. They don't notice, so they just assume that she's black. Right. And she, and she plays basketball with them and has fun. And she can fly, so she's very good at basketball, right? And I will say, while we mentioned Megan flying, one of the things that struck me most when I was a kid was her power signature where her hair becomes like the tail of a comet it's when great. she flies is so, so cool. beautiful. And I was always just so struck by it. I can't believe that nobody else has that been stolen. You don't see it. And it's you don't it, really see it. And it's so good. Yeah. It's just like a really beautiful and it's so distinctively her. Yeah. So a couple things to say about because those are but those are issues. I just want to but I just want yeah, to finish. So she's playing this basketball game. She's having a wonderful time. All of these people really like her. They're like, this girl's great at basketball. They're like having fun. She has a British accent, which everyone's finding kind of funny in New York. Right. And that's when Brian, who has been looking for her desperately, because he's afraid that she's going to get hurt on her own. Right. She's so innocent and so vulnerable, given that her powers are making her suggestible right now. He finds her and she flies across the court kisses him in midair, is so happy, and then they take a taxi back to the hotel. But her form does not change back. Right. She stays in this African-American shape all the way back to the hotel. And she's like, don't I look beautiful? And here's the thing that's interesting about that. We've seen the women that Brian is interested in. Yep. They are white, blonde women. Yep. Without exception. Built like brick shit houses. Yeah. And, yep. And so she's sitting with Brian, who is the man she loves. And throughout this arc, she is transforming herself subconsciously to match her desires. But she had so much fun playing with those guys on the court. That she that stayed. The whole ride home, she stays in the form she was in when she played that game. Yep. And then when they're back at the hotel, she's like, ah, and, you know, and, and turns into white blonde Megan again, which is the, the Megan that Brian now would desire. I'm looking at the I'm looking at one of the panels, actually. And if you, uh, if I may, I'd like to read. Yeah. Look at yourself, Megan. Those aren't your features. This is Brian. Look at yourself. Those aren't your features. And she says, it's my face, Brian. They must be my features. And yeah. I love that. It's so good. That, that, is, the, that is the one issue. Uh, Ron Lim drew it. And yeah. I like Ron Lim okay. Uh, it's it's perfectly good. If it wasn't typically an Alan Davis it wasn't book, usually, I would think it was a beautiful issue. You know what I mean? If I could just replace Alan Davis for one issue. Yeah. But Ron Lim, does, Ron Lim does just fine. And this is the issue that I make my exception for, where I say if it's not if it's not Alan Davis, it's not Excalibur, that's that. Uh, but this one, I'm like, no, this is, this is a solid, solid issue. It's also the one where Brian gets cited for solicitation. Oh, my God. Because shorts are so it's tiny so, on his giant it's body. It's so that funny. Like, they think he's a hustler. It's so which is extremely funny. The whole thing is so funny. She so so to to bring these two issues together because they are back to back issues basically. It's a two issue run where she's the goblin princess and she's evil, and she's constantly saying things like "You always disappoint me, Brian." You know, yeah. Like, and she talks about his infidelity, which she's aware of, right? And she is very direct about it. Like, "You're never going to cheat on me again because now I have the power." It's. It, to me, Inferno, the reason she switches to Inferno is maybe because she's so suggestible. But I think it's, it, 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 Inferno, if, if you, you know, which I know you've read extensively. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it brings out things in people that in were people. already there. Their darker nature that already existed. Yeah. And, and they even make a point of that after she has kind of reverted back. That no, that would, that, that's something that was that's already in you. there. 
that and rage Ryan says that wasn't the real you, just like it wasn't the real me. And Megan's like, um, yeah, no, I that, think it was the real both of us, kind of. And and so that's that is that is a that is probably the most direct uh, example that yes, she is very kind and selfless, and she is good in a way that most characters aren't in ways that are rarely complicated, but there is a real rage in there because of the fact that she hasn't been able for a variety of reasons to really find herself. And then to give her this moment where she's, she starts it very scared and Brian is very scared for her and, and they're off in New York, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. and, and Brian believes that she cannot take care of herself. That is his baseline. And he stays panicked the whole time. And he takes L after L after L. He loses his powers. Constantly humiliated every time he's looking for her. It's so funny. It is is one of the funniest comics uh, in the run and maybe ever. I mean, it's just, it's just constantly hilarious. The next one, he, he still got his powers missing and he's in the danger room and they open it's so a trap good. door and before he falls in he actually flaps his arms he flaps I, his arms like a cartoon character yeah. and they put him in a new mutants uniform it's so funny it's beautiful anyway he's taking he, he is just losing she's fine she's she, thriving she's doing great she could stay i i want i want a megan uh i want a megan what if where she stays in new york She'd be fine. I want a Megan what if where she joins the WNBA after that basketball scene. Yeah. What's clear out of that to me, what I take from that is this is all leading toward this is somebody who has almost limitless power and can come into that power. And what's needed is not so much for her to leave Brian and get with Kurt, which is sort of what's being implied. And Kurt's, you know, I, Kurt's pretty great in this. Uh, you know, Nightcrawler is very <laughs> charming. And I definitely I've never liked him more than I do in Excalibur. He's wonderful. Yeah, and and and, sure. and he's and he's super sexy and he's very sexy, which again, normally I'm not in the Nightcrawler sex vortex, as I called it in episode <laughs> two. But Alan Davis's Nightcrawler is is very hot. He's he's he was the character I wanted to be. I was like I identified hard with you know he's charming like you well, and it makes be. sense that you feel drawn to Megan because he's so drawn to Megan. Sure. And also she's really hot. So also she's Stunningly gorgeous, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, but, but, um, but it, it I, what I take from that is, it, I'm not saying that Brian isn't right for Megan, but I am saying that it, for most, if not all of the Davis run of Excalibur, he manifestly wasn't, and he knew it, and so did she, and yeah, and there what to me there was some great destiny that that still exists out there it it, it, for a long time i thought you know this is this is really this should be captain britain this is she should be captain britain she should be captain and there is actually an alternate like time where she is because brian died yeah right and 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 but but actually i think her her destiny could probably be something more along the lines of this should be saturnine Saturnine or Roma, right? Like should she be should Roma. be that person. She, she is. She is basically when she goes looking for her parents, and then she finally she she kind of gets this. You know, they, they stumble upon this this mystic creature who is able to kind of give her a vision of who she is. She's Galadriel. She's she's the yeah. hot like she is the the queen of the high elves. You know, she's <laughs> yeah. 
I think that what, and this is where, you know, not to be a Saturnine apologist, which I, which I very which, much am. Which but you are, yeah. I, I think that, though, part of what is interesting about her as a foil for Saturnine mm-hmm. and why she shouldn't be in that position mm-hmm. is that Saturnine and Roma before her are chess players. They are very controlling. They're sure. type A people who want to control others and who want to create a system of order. Right. Megan is about as chaotic good as a character mm-hmm. can get. She is untamed nature. Yep. And so for me, that role wouldn't suit her. Being sort of the celestial timekeeper is something that I think would stifle her natural joy. But I, I do think that there is something bigger for her in other worlds which it feels like we're finally getting it, right it could it could be a completely new role but yes i mean yeah the other thing i i will say is and i i actually would say this about i, I this was my my internal dialogue listening to the rogue episode where they're talking about rogue and gambit on excalibur and how you know you, you've got to put those two together in a book i really want to see uh, a functional married couple that don't work together and you have yeah. so many books like you can't you don't have to, you know, they can they can. And I'm not saying they can't have Rogue and, and, and Gambit together. And they've had some but it'd be cool to also. I really liked in 16 how the vibe is Brian's become a stay at home dad and Megan is going to go be a superhero. Yeah, so that that I think is the natural endpoint of their relationship. Well, he always, that's what makes sense to me. He always wants to be home with his family. He's the one who wants right. that. And he doesn't want any warpies and he doesn't want the tech. No, he just wants he it just, to be. Quiet at nice home with his... and normal and quiet, right. <laughs> right. And she wants to be someone who changes the world. She wants to be absolutely someone who goes out in the world and makes good happen. And has the power to do it. I will say this too. You, I, I don't disagree necessarily that, that she wouldn't fit suit. She wouldn't be well suited to the Roma or Saturnine role if that's the only way of doing it. That you could do it. Right. No, it, but that's true. I It just, because of the nature of the Marvel Universe where the multiverse is constantly being threatened, it does kind of feel like you need someone like that in charge. You know, Merlin was an evil person in charge who was like that. Right. Roma was a good person in charge who was like that. And Saturnine is sort of a neutral person in charge who's like that, which I find to be the most interesting option. Sat- nothing, listen, nothing against Saturnine. When oh, I said, no, for sure, and, for and, sure. And nothing, I, I'm, I'm definitely on uh, on Team Captain Betsy all the way, you know, the, oh, mo- yeah, yeah, the yeah. moment that happened. Um, but I had always thought, uh, you know, reading those books, like, you know, this is Captain Britain, really. Right. Megan is the real voice of the people. And, and well, way. and she's connected. She's connected to the ground. To the actual. Yeah, she's yeah. actually connected to it. And it's actually. I don't think it's just suggested. I think she says overtly. She realizes right after they get engaged. I think it is that the reason that she has been attracted to him. Well, that's because, where I was going to go next. Yeah. Right. It's not because. And so she. She. She has a bit of a freak out because she's like, well, do you just love me because I don't look like a gremlin? To explain this scene, because it is. Yeah, it do is. it. So basically, Brian's powers get disrupted over the course of Excalibur for a number of reasons that are related to a jinx that Roma placed on him 
and to also force him to learn to be a team player, and also because his powers are tied intrinsically to being in Britain, and, and also because he's wearing the wrong uniform because he got it from an alternate self during the cross time. And, and one other reason, which is that Alan Davis loves to draw Brian falling into water, falling out of the sky, and whatnot. Right? Yeah. So here's the sequence of events. Set your nine reveals that she has been impersonating Courtney and rapes Brian and explains that she murdered Courtney and gloats about it and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Megan is the only person who is able to resist Jamie Braddock's reality warp because of her nature as an empathic metamorph who's a fluid entity. Brian is mind controlled by Satyr 9 who orders him to kill Megan and that's what snaps him out of it is mm -hmm. that he refuses to hurt Megan. That's right. They defeat Satyr 9, but Satyr 9 and Jamie escape. And then Brian is consumed by rage for the next several issues because he is determined to find Satyr 9 and avenge Courtney's murder. Right. And Megan, while she understands why he feels this way, is also very hurt because, of course, Courtney is the person Brian was having an affair with. Right. Now, Courtney, the actual Courtney, was having an emotional affair with Brian. Sat your nine as Courtney is the one he had the physical affair with. But regardless, it's all tied up in the same thing, which is when Brian was treating her most poorly, when he was in mm -hmm. the depths of alcoholism and was not faithful to her and was treating her like garbage. At this point in their relationship, he's gotten sober they're doing much better. And it's like it all just sort of comes back for her. And so she's feeling distant. Kurt essentially has to explain to him why she's upset. Mm -hmm. Which is funny because, of course, like Brian and Kurt have gotten into a physical altercation in which Brian broke Kurt's leg because Kurt had a wet dream about Megan and said her name in his sleep. And Brian overheard. <laughs> which that's that's another key moment, though, because Megan stops the fight and she says yep i don't understand why you're fighting and rachel says you're fighting over me but i'm not a thing brian no one can own me right i gave my heart to you because you made me feel safe for the first time in my life but now i don't feel safe at all it all feels ruined mm -hmm. and she flies away and that's when brian gets dragged off to his trial in the citadel because breaking kurt's leg is like the last violation of his captain britain rules and regulations and the citadel's had enough I just want to I just want to pause for a second and and bask in the sheer continuity and sanity that you just you're 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 halfway through but that is some real Excalibur shit. That's some Excalibur <laughs> shit, right? I just I just wanted to appreciate it. Continue so when please. they all get back from Otherworld cuz Brian has survived his trial because Saturnine interfered at Roma's behest and that's when we find out about Roma's jinx and yada 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 and Excalibur and Brian say we're not working for you anymore to Roma. They're back in the lighthouse and that's where we're at right now. That's right. But they've had this altercation and he's apologized to her and whatnot. Then this whole thing with Satyr 9 happens and yep. she's just like this man has no respect for me. And Kurt says to him, like, listen, you have to convey to her that you care and that it's not just about, like, owning her and that you give a shit about her. Yep. And so he takes time off and takes her on vacation. And they actually have a really nice time together. And she's like, 
you know, I had forgotten how nice it is when it's just us and, you know, how nice it is to just be together. And he proposes to her. Mm -hmm. And she is overjoyed and is like, yes, I want this. I remember now what it is that I want and it's you. And they are so happy, etc. Then Brian's powers get all fucked up. Right. And Megan has this moment of panic. Because in the interim here, Megan had that storyline with Rachel mm -hmm. where she discovered her true form, which is this sort of fey eldritch form with more silvery blonde hair and like magical eyes. And she looks kind of spooky, but still hot. She is basically Galadriel with the ring. That's that's. Yeah. But, yeah. But not scary. But not as evil. Right. Like Right. Yeah. And the thing that that gives her, though, that experience is that she now sees more clearly the auras and life energy around people that she has always perceived. But now her sight is like very keen. She's more aware of it. Yeah, she's more conscious of the fact that, A, it's not the way everybody else sees the world. Mm -hmm. And B, she, her perception has improved. And when Brian's powers short out, she has this moment of panic and he's like what's wrong and she won't explain to him it's like the first time megan's ever really deceptive or withholding mm -hmm. finally she admits to him once his powers are restored she's like thank god that you look the same again and he's like what do you mean and she's like well there's an energy signature around you that's so beautiful mm -hmm. and it's part of why I was attracted to you, I'm realizing. Right. And it was suddenly gone. And I was afraid that I wouldn't love you the same way. And he's like, Megan, we're not just our outward appearances. And she's like, oh, really? Right. <laughs> and turns back into the gremlin. The bat thing. Was yeah. when, the bat gremlin creature that she was when he met her. And she's like, I became beautiful for you. Right. Would you love me if I still looked like this? And he doesn't have anything to say. And he doesn't have any response because, of course, he would. The yeah, because we we already saw that that was when he became uh, interested in her. The other aspect of that is the implication is that what she's attracted to is his connection to Otherworld, which clearly she's from. Yes, she is from Otherworld, and he is also from Otherworld. But their shared connection to Otherworld is what drew her to him. Right. And so now she's she's questioning. And when it was disconnected, right. she was like, uh, so I want this. Right. And I like that because to me, that is a, one of the steps in making their relationship more equal. Because what it establishes is Brian's developing exterior appearance mm -hmm. was also something that she was attracted to. Like that surface level transformation they both had it and we just couldn't see it because she perceived it in a way that we didn't because she sees differently from the way that we do as readers. And it makes it not just that she, she doesn't have to just look a certain way for him. He also kind of has to look a certain way for her. And I found that to be a good corrective because she asserts like, I do love you, but it's important to me that you be attractive to me. And, she, and she's like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. You can surely admit that you wouldn't want to be with me if I looked like a gremlin. Right. And he is embarrassed. And it cuts away from there to the others. I think it's Kitty and Rachel, or maybe Kurt and Rachel, or something like that. Or Kurt and Kitty. I forget which two people it is. But they're like, it looks like they're kind of having a rough spot. And the other one is just like, 
Yeah, but they'll come out the other end. Like they're sort of like they're finally talking to each other. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it it's that kind of moment where you're you start to believe like yeah, I think these two will sort this out. And then what happens from there is when Davis leaves the book and Lovedell sends Brian away, Megan does in his absence become a more self-assured character and then when he comes back as Britannic right becomes because he's lost he's suddenly the character she was essentially she's the one who grounds him on earth Mm -hmm. actively chooses him and guides his addled mind through the experience Mm -hmm. and by the time they get out the other end of that and he's Captain Britain again in the Ellis run Right. The relationship to me feels very egalitarian. Okay. Talk talk more about that because that's 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 what I that's what I now this is where I stepped up. Yeah. I need I, I need to understand I need to understand what's happened in the inter without without recapitulating the um, the character file. No, character let me give file. you my beat my character beats for them that I think they're like why I love this relationship because yeah, it's very unhealthy when it begins mm-hmm. and it's very strange and there are things about it that would if they had continued the way they were be like I hate this, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a couple things. It's that Megan begins asserting herself. It's that scene where she says, be honest with me, you wouldn't date me if I was a gremlin. Like where she says the thing that we've all been thinking the whole time. Right. And they can be honest with each other about that. Yes. Then she learns to read and write, like gets which, an education. Which, okay, how does that happen? Because, you know, Brian is basically just like, oh, the poor girl doesn't know how to read and write. Like, dude, you could teach her how to read right. and write. She- like. <laughs> Yeah, at a certain she point, works, a certain she works point, really hard your, at it. This is this is your choice at a point, dude. But I'm glad that he doesn't take that he doesn't like take that onto himself. No, he, he, teaching her, he it would be weirder. He would. It, you're, you're right. It, it would be weirder. But there's, and, and I didn't mean it like that. But no, no, no. But it is also a steady thing. Like in the sword is drawn after their fight, where he calls her a changeling cow because he's drunk. Yeah, not great. She's like already clearly learned a little bit because she writes a note for him that says Megan go. Yeah, and then has like a has like <laughs> a cat. It has a cat or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is so cute. By the time of Britannic, she's like reading and writing at, you know, at least a, a elementary or middle school level because she's been working really hard at it. Okay. I'm glad I'm glad they start doing that because there there was yeah. a like, okay, come on now, like we can we can get this poor person right. some resources so he's lost his mind right because he was lost in the time stream perceived like all of these different futures horrible things but when he comes back there's two things he knows one is that like this horrible future whatever is going to come to pass and the other is in every timeline that's good in every timeline where his life is any good mm-hmm. he's with meg i'm I'm sure that's true. I'm, I'm sure that that, that right. is the best situation for him. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so the question is then what's best for her, right. right? So she helps him like reacclimate to the regular earth. Mm-hmm. She's also the one who brings him back because she identifies that Rachel is the chronal anomaly and gets them to switch places. But when he comes back, he's not what she wanted. But she decides that she loves him enough that she's going to help him through this. And he is the more fey character 
at that point. And she hmm, helped yeah. him okay. sort of become more human again. And at the same time, her powers have been increasing in this way that's very potent. So she's becoming not only a more powerful character than him, but a more powerful character than him who's in control of her powers, as opposed to just... Are you saying that something good came out of Britannic? Oh, yeah. It's wild, right? <laughs> and the thing is, Britannic was always supposed to be temporary. I mean, that's what Lindell has said. It's yeah. like it was supposed to throw off the reader and be this weird thing that would be resolved and that Brian would be embarrassed about later, which I'm sure he is. Sure. So then where it goes from there is interesting. So the Ellis stuff restores him to being Captain Britain, which is like, thank God, we get rid of the Britannic mm -hmm. thing. But doesn't delve super deep into their relationship. What's interesting, though, is when Colossus joins the team, basically what happens around that time is Brian and Megan, like, get re-engaged, essentially, because he's like, I was lost in the time stream. Let's, like, try to do this over. You know, like, let's do this again. Right. Right. And she sees a ring that she wants and he buys it for her and it's nice. And then they're trying to just sort of enjoy themselves and they're attacked by the dragons of the Crimson Dawn, which don't worry about it. But uh, it's sort of interesting that it's the, because that's, that's a Betsy plot that's going on in X-Men, right? So it's like a Brian Betsy sure. thing. They both get fucked up by the Crimson Dawn. What happens there is that the Crimson Dawn storyline, once it resolves, Brian loses all his powers. Mm. They're completely gone. And he is freaked out by this and is just like, I need to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And I love you. And I don't, I still want to marry you, but like, I need to take a minute. And she completely understands that. And I couldn't help but wonder, is she also just like, uh-oh, you're at Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> you're, you're gross to me now. Yeah, like, oh, I'm not right. But, so he leaves the book for a long time. Hmm. And while he's gone, she's very attracted to Colossus. What? Yeah. Okay. So as a wedding present for Brian, she poses for Piotr for a painting. And so they're working <laughs> together on this painting. It's like kind of sexy. It's a funny storyline. I, I, I read the Outback era. I know how, how it goes. How that goes, right? Yeah. Painting. The last yeah. time he did it was sexy. Mm -hmm. So he's like always with, tied up in these sporadics. So he's painting this sexy portrait of Megan for Brian. And Megan misinterprets what's going on because she is attracted to Piotr, but she assumes that she's feeling Piotr's attraction to her. Okay. Because she's so used to just absorbing everyone else's empathic whatever. Sure. And she finally says to him, like, you're trying to take advantage of our friendship and, like, start something sexual with me. And he's like, actually, I'm really not. Hmm. I have a completely platonic regard for you. And she realizes that for the first time, she's, like, projecting her own feelings <laughs> onto someone else. And it's a fun little storyline. And she's mortified. Nothing ever happens between them. Like, she's just like, oh, geez, okay. And then she starts thinking, you know, I want Brian to come back. Okay. Eventually he does, and they get married, and that's the final issue of Excalibur. Sure. And what's really fun about that story is, before they can get married, she has to say to him, like, okay, I need to tell you something. Um, I uh, was really into Colossus. I was like really into Colossus. <laughs> I was really into Colossus, Brian. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be, but I was unfaithful in my heart or whatever. And he's just like, 
okay, that's really okay. Like I've done way worse. Like it's fine. I love you. It's <laughs> right. Like don't worry about that. Did you not read the first twenty issues of? Right. Well, he's just kind of. He's just kind of like, am I really gonna be mad at you? Like you didn't even fuck him. Like I'm really not. Like, like right. you know, am I really? Gonna... And then they get married, and Roma officiates the wedding. Saturnine is sitting in the front row, looking pissed the entire time. Love it. And then after the wedding, Saturnine tries to seduce him at the reception. She's like, it's a shame. I always thought in the end it would be you and me, Brian. And she like she goes, and he's just like, "That's what are you doing? We are at my wedding to Megan, who is the woman I love. That's and about the, the messiest thing. <laughs> She's <laughs> the messiest character doing the messiest thing. Yeah, I love. That's amazing. I love Brian and Saturnine. And I love Saturnine. But like the thing about Saturnine is she is a perfectly logical machine of ambition and intelligence except when it comes to how much she wants brian sure and i find that hilarious and it is just like a moment of it's a little much like i'm not quite sure i buy the characterization in that issue but it is an important moment so it's like brian explicitly saying to courtney right no the, the only courtney available right no absolutely not it's megan it's always been megan mm -hmm. good day to you they're able to reach that because he was depowered and left the team. Megan is a heavy-duty, powerful superheroine doing her own thing without him on Excalibur for quite a while. And then has her thing where she's like, I think, is like, what's going on here with Colossus? And by the time he comes back, it feels as though she has fully sort of come into her power and she's choosing him because he's the man she wants to be with, not because she craves his approval. Okay. And that is where they leave the characters for the most part. Then they take over Otherworld and become the King and Queen of Avalon mm -hmm. in the Excalibur miniseries that happens in 2001. And then... To hell for a hot minute, right? Yeah. The, Pun well, intended. So then that, and then that's where it really gets... MI-13 is what cements them for me as this really... Well, first, you get House of M, where Claremont and Davis are back together again, writing these characters. Nice. I am not the hugest fan of that period of Claremont when he returned to the X-Men books, but particularly because, and this is relevant to this storyline, I didn't like the way he characterized Rachel when he brought her back. That's important. I thought that she felt different and young in a way that I didn't like. You mentioned that. It's because it's... I think you had said that... My theory is that it's because Whedon had Kitty, had right. custody of Kitty, and so he kind of just wrote Rachel as kind of a Rachel-Kitty hybrid. Got it. But also, honestly, and this is just me being honest, part of it is Claremont did not like the Scott and Emma thing. Okay. And Rachel becomes sort of his mouthpiece to talk shit about that relationship relentlessly. Uh... And it comes across weird and, and out of character. I would I would believe that Claremont was capable of that yeah it feels very much like claremont saying wow how disgusting that you're shacking up with emma right after Jean died through rachel right it feels forced to me and i don't like the way that it's set up with her being so antagonistic with emma it does it just doesn't work for me particularly when at the end of the morrison run it's Jean who like from beyond the grave tells scott it's okay if you want to be with her right like you should live your life i'm dead yeah, but he probably didn't agree with that part either, and and he felt well, Claremont certainly right. did. That's what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. just felt very much like the author's opinion 
coming out of the character's mouth, which is not... Well, you know what? I'm a hypocrite, because I love, as I said, when Bendis had Kitty smack down that Remender issue. But also, that feels like something Kitty would actually feel and believe, whereas Rachel being this petulant teen did right. not feel like Rachel to me. Fair enough. I think it's fair enough. Anyway, that said, the Brian and Megan stuff in the House of M storyline is pretty great, in my opinion. Okay. In House of M, basically, they're ruling Otherworld, they're working with Saturnine and Roma, uh-huh. who are subordinate to them now. Everyone realizes, like, the Scarlet Witch's reality warp is threatening all creation, yada, yada, yada. It's, it's a whole mess. And Saturnine is like, I'm going to destroy Earth 616 unless you fix this in the next 48 hours, because it's too dangerous. And you are too attached, and you're not thinking clearly. So get it together. And he and Megan go to, like, try to save the day. But the second they touch down, they're impacted by the reality and they become the king and queen of England, which is <laughs> hilarious, right? <laughs> That's, yeah. The one thing I don't love here is that you would think Megan would be more resistant to the reality warp because she was with Jaspers and she was with Jamie in the mm. past. And that doesn't happen, but whatever, it's fun. It's the, it's the first and only continuity error in X-Men comics. <laughs> right, exactly. This is where Claremont brings back Courtney Ross. Okay. And it's unclear if it's the real Courtney or if it's Satyr 9. Brian assumes it's Satyr 9 and, like, rips her dress to try and reveal Satyr 9's tattoo on her thigh. Mm. And it's not there. That's a big swing. And Courtney starts crying. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? And Brian's like, uh... So in that House of M storyline, Megan sacrifices herself to save the universe. Okay. She stops the warp from destroying all reality, but then because, and this is where in MI-13, we learn Megan does remember all of this. That's the thing, like in Jasper's work. But Brian can't remember what happened. He Mm -hmm. just knows Megan saved him and saved the world and is apparently dead. That's all he can remember. And that leads into Claremont's new Excalibur, which I don't think is a particularly good book. And to me, felt like he had pushed Megan off the page because he wanted to explore the Brian and Courtney, is she really Courtney, Mm -hmm. thick. Those were his original characters way back in the day. Correct. He invented Brian and Courtney back in the original 70s run of Captain Britain, and he brought Courtney back in Excalibur, and Megan, though he loved that character, was a later addition in the Captain Britain mythos in the 80s. She was an Alan Moore and Alan Davis creation and then was fleshed out really by Davis and Delano, so it was not a Claremont original. The new Excalibur book is weird. Brian is a widower. He becomes Captain Britain again, and he's mourning Megan, and Courtney is trying to convince him that she's the real Courtney, and he starts to buy it at a certain point because she's doing nothing but help them, and she doesn't have the tattoo, and reality was just warped, so who knows? Like, it's not out of the question that she could have come back. That plot thread has, by the way, never come up again. We have no idea where that character is, or if she was really (laughs) Satyr 9, it's very unclear. I think it's Satyr 9 up to something nefarious and like she just had the tattoo removed. Yeah, that, that, that seems like a fairly simple dodge. Yeah, and I, you know what? I bet Teeny's going to tie that up because she's now very invested in the Saturn 9 Courtney of it all. The point is, Megan's off the page then for a while. Then you get to Captain Britain in MI-13 and there's an arc early on where Brian is fighting this demon, Plotka, who gives you your heart's desire. This I read. Okay. And he sees Megan. Right. But as he fights through the thing, he realizes this is a fantasy. 
It's and not really he assumes that Megan is also an illusion, right? Because other people in Flacco's dream corridor have received their lost loved ones as part of the illusory fantasy. So he's like, oh my God, you're not real. The only thing I wanted was to have you back, but you're not real. And he, and just heart, th- this is just a crusher. This is a crusher. This is devastating. Megan says he's turned away from her and he doesn't even hear her as she continues to talk. And Megan's like, Brian, Brian, I'm what people believe me to be. And if you think I'm not real, and she starts to fade away. Uh, and it's he could have, horrible. He could have clapped to bring Tinkerbell back and he Exactly. Didn't. She needs, you need to believe in fairies for her to exist. Yeah. It's really awful, awful moment. And then he's like talking to the others. And he's just like, he made me think Megan was back. Right. The cruelest joke. Oh, I miss her so much. Alistair Stewart is like, don't worry, Brian, we'll find her. <laughs> Right. (laughs) And she's like, Brian, I'm right here. Right. And then because the whole corridor collapses and Plotka's dream realm is disintegrated, she falls literally into hell. Right. And we see that she's trying to get back to Brian. And in the final arc of Captain Britain and MI-13, it's revealed that Dr. Doom has somehow gotten a hold of her and she is a hostage. It turns out okay and she helps Brian save the day. The really significant part is Brian's like, Megan, whatever you've been through, I'm sure it's a lot, and I've been through a lot, and if you need some time, right. if you don't want to be with me anymore, I'll understand. And she's just like, shut up. Right. I want to be with you. She's like, I fought out of fucking hell to be with you. Like, don't patronize me. And then they kiss, and it's really nice. And then there's the annual, which reveals what Megan was up to this whole time. And this is where she gets the name Gloriana, which mm-hmm. has now been her code name. This issue to me is like, I mean, if you're a Megan fan, which I have been since I was a small child, it is Megan fan drugs. It is like, put pump this directly into my veins. Megan parleys with the Lords of Hell. Right. Like what? Dormammu is there. and Yeah, Dormammu, Hela, Mephisto, Satanish, Margit Curios. She strolls up and she's like, I'm sorry, isn't this supposed to hurt or something? She's like, am I not supposed to be being tortured or whatever? And they're just like, uh, well, you're not supposed to be here. So I think you're not on anyone's list. She gives them knowledge of what Plotka had done, which is valuable to them. And then she opens herself empathically to like ask a question of hell. And he's turned into like an absolute Cronenberg monster. Horror, yeah, yeah. And they're all just like, LOL, that was stupid of you. Right. I think I think even Dormammu is like when Dormammu's have like, you ever heard of, yeah that was a stupid thing what to do. made you think this would go well ever? yeah you <laughs> can't open your heart to hell that doesn't work she's like and that made me angry right there's your rage again I I did like this story quite a lot and so she as this creature of rage influences the demons around her that are being abused and depressed mm-hmm. in hell. Basically, Norma raised them together. Yep. Aren't you mad? I would say the the reason that this is drugs for a Megan fan is, if you're a Megan fan, I feel like you want to let her have that rate. Like, you want to let her... You want her to be angry. Sometimes. Yes. She should be. (laughs) She should be allowed to be pissed. Yes. And so she's furious, and that rage inflames the demons around her who feel like they have this drudgery existence that is miserable. And she's just like, no, you don't have to live like this. You can fight back. 
and she amasses an army behind herself, and they begin conquering hell. And she makes a deal with Pluto, who is a hell lord who's fallen out of favor mm -hmm. with the big hell lords, and he helps her stabilize her form permanently mm -hmm. so that she's no longer subjected to anyone else's opinion of her changing her appearance, mm -hmm. which is, I think, an important Very. thing. He basically says to her, you've always been able to do that. Just do it. And she now has the wherewithal to be like, you're right, I can. And no one will ever judge me again, least of all you. She leads the army around. And as she continues to conquer, driven by her rage, she realizes that what she feels beneath her rage more than anything else is hope. Because she believes that she will get out and find Brian. Mm -hmm. And the demons who have fallen under her empathic influence have never felt hope before mm -hmm. and they have never felt joy before and the joy the hope that you might feel joy that she might see brian again they're all stunned by this new emotion that they've never experienced that they begin to hail her as gloriana as the queen of the fairies right and she says you know i never thought i deserved a superhero name I never thought I had earned one. Which is so sad. She's the she's the most powerful member of the team. So I know. So, but I've always just been Megan. I never felt I really was a superhero. But Gloriana, I like it. So let them call me that. Mm -hmm. Their hope bolsters her hope. And she realizes, all right, we've conquered enough. Yeah. I'm going to help them establish a little nation, which she names Elysium, where people who are being mistreated in hell can come for sanctuary. She sets them up to manage this fiefdom themselves. And then she battles her way out of hell to find Brian and walks directly into a portal that leads out into Dr. Doom's castle and it leads into where the story went. Right. The thing about this annual that I love more than just the story in hell where she becomes Gloriana, which is an amazing story, is that it is intercut with flashbacks to her life that we had never seen before. Mm -hmm. She's sitting there watching TV. But first it's her experiencing racism, mm -hmm. which is something that had not been, the character has always been Ramana Shaw. But never foregrounded, really. It's never been foregrounded, especially because she looks like a blonde white woman, right? Right. So to show that she experiences anti-Zygonist racism and that that is one of her first experiences of the people around her, even when she wasn't looking like a gremlin, like she had managed to hold it together enough, is, you know, they're talking about gypsies. Yeah. And she transforms into a racist caricature. Mm -hmm. And freaks them out. Of like a Romany fortune teller and freaks them out. And they're like, oh my God, what is that? You know? And looks like this gnarled, tiny old woman. And she's like a six or seven year old. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yep. And then she turns into the gremlin again. And then it's like, and then my parents lock me away. And you see her watching all of these television shows and learning and, and losing herself in the escapism of the television shows. And then as the narrative shifts, you start to see stories from when she was with Captain Britain in the Captain Britain stories. And then when she was starting Excalibur with him. And you start to hear not Megan's thoughts, but anonymous viewers watching Megan on yep. television. So we see Megan on television now, as she always dreamed of being. Right. And we also see what she feels at all times, which is how other people regard her, which is what has shaped her physical and mental form. Right. Because of the nature of her power. So it starts with them saying, oh, look at 
Captain Britain's new mutant friend. Isn't that cute? And someone's like, yes, I think he'll adopt her. And then it's her as the reputable sub. It's like, she's a bit of all right. Where'd she come from? Right. And then when they're together in Excalibur, this is the most interesting page to me. Basically, the viewers are like, she's too young for him. She's a bit young for him. She seems like a child. He's a pedophile. That stood out to me as well, because it's taking the valid criticism of Brian and people are putting it on her. Yes. And also, like, the thing that we all maybe felt about their relationship early in Excalibur, we say there's an unequal power dynamic. This issue says he's a pedo or a pedo because it's Britain. But like Megan feels people think this. Right. She can feel it. Yeah. What I love about this issue is that because the problem with the relationship is we feel this and we don't think Megan understands Mm -hmm. that the dynamic is messy. Yeah. And now in this issue, we get the sense that she has always, even if she didn't process it immediately at the time, been aware of what people think of her because that's the nature of her power. She's she's extremely emotionally intelligent. Exactly. And always has been. And she's like, you all think he's a pedophile because he's with me. And and that probably made her behave more childlike because she's... Was that a criticism of the character at the time? Because I always thought it was more just that he wanted nothing to do with her when she was one of the warpy like beasts in his house. And then it's just when she she transformed into the object of his desire that he was like, oh, hey, you are interesting. It was both. I think that the core criticisms, the three core criticisms people have had yeah. are that he's only interested in her once she becomes beautiful, Valid. which I think they address in the storyline where she is no longer interested in him after he loses the energy matrix. Yeah. Then there's the fact that he is emotionally abusive to her and verbally abusive to Valid. her. Valid. Which, yes, but which is part of his alcoholism storyline, and mm. they do work that out, and he stops drinking, and he's very ashamed of the way he behaved, and apologetic. Yeah. And then the third beat, though, was that she seemed like a child in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And Brian says so. I mean, he's like, she has no life experience. That's what he says to Kurt when he's justifying his affair with Courtney. He's like, Courtney makes me feel like I can be myself. With Megan, I'm her whole world because she has no life experience. Right. He sees her as childlike. As a child. Right. This issue is the first time I think that was ever addressed. Because it establishes that Megan is aware that people think that. Yeah. And and the criticism in that page is presented in a way that takes her agency. I think that that's the... Exactly. I think that's the key. She knows you think that, and she would prefer that you not treat her like a child and think she doesn't know what she wants. And that is what I think is important about it. I absolutely agree with that. And and it's why I, I want to tread lightly, because even though I'm not really um I'm not really on on team Megan Bryan and haven't been, it is interesting to hear how these things layer in. I will say that that you know that speech that you referenced that he gave to Kurt where he's like well she's so much like a child is one of the most messed up things any hero has said and any yes. because it's yes. just like well if you think that dude then, then why are what you fucking are, her what are you doing <laughs> Right there's also a really important moment in that annual where cuz there's two stories right and the second story is Brian thinking about Megan while he's trying to play a game mm-hmm. of baseball 
or cricket or something. I don't know. British. Yeah, I, I I like I wanted to get to that one for sure. And there's a sequence where it's the it's you see the first time they have sex, and she starts to take her clothes off, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. We can't. I'm attracted to you, and I'm influencing you because of your powers. And she says, Brian, you're not. Right. Because you just said no, and I still want to do this. Right. So don't patronize me. Right. It's doing the work to be conscious of and explicitly name the things about their relationship that were a little oogie. And say, Megan is aware. Megan is not stupid. Megan was, as we said earlier, Megan is uneducated and has very little life experience. But she's not stupid. And she's not a child. Right. And if you actually respect her, you'll let her make her own choices. And seeing these flashbacks, which, you know, it's retcon, but that's life. I mean, Scott and Jean are constantly getting little retcon scenes of... Yeah, it's one of those classic X-Men stories. It's a, it's exactly like a classic X-Men backup. And I think it really fixes a lot of that, but only because the work was put in to show her growing without him and affirmatively choosing him over the course of Excalibur and then into this MI-13 storyline. I agree with you that this is a very good issue. And I think that um, I think that it, it does a, a lot of... Uh, good work in the ways that you have pointed out. There are a couple things that I would make go for it as I was going through. One of them is once again, this is this is an absolutely foundational Megan story that she's that she's basically Norma Raying hell. That even yeah. hell that you know even even the, not even demons can resist Megan's good natured spirit and, and her power, will. right? And her power and right. it, and it lets her have rage. But there's a few things. One is, it's once again a story that happens when Brian's out of the picture, and and that seems to be the what happens every time with Megan. So it, you know, it's it's a very um, it's a very tricky place for the character to be right now because she has she has clearly come through a, a place with that relationship where it's the choice that she wants and she's made it and. Uh, and, and and that is part of her agency. And it's an interesting thing to do with somebody who was struggling with a confused sense of self and a confused sense of agency. And a lot of that was tied into a relationship that frankly wasn't healthy to come through and fix the relationship and choose to stay in the relationship. In right. Interesting. But from a story perspective, I think that whenever Brian is around, it it makes it it makes it a lot more challenging. And so I'm really looking forward to the future of the character to Me see too. to see how they because I I think I think you know I'm I'm a big fan of the Excalibur run we, 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 as mm-hmm. we discussed, um, and I think that uh, Teeny Howard's doing a great job with it, and I think that she probably can navigate that. The other thing that I wanted to point out from that issue that actually bothered me was when she's remembering Brian and she's, it's this big full panel spread of them. And they're, they're, they're looking like, uh, they're looking like a million bucks. They're having a picnic and she's, they're very happy smiling. And and she's talking about the hope of returning to Brian. He always loved me for what I really was. Um, That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he does now I buy it. That's fine, but that's not true. He saw what I was, knew it, loved it, and so he helped me make it. 
He only let me down when I let him down. I really don't like that. I do, that's, yeah, that's, I, that's I, really, really not true. The, I will say that line is off. That bit, I was reading it and I was like, uh, this could be rough going. The rest of it was far better. I think that that was, yeah, 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 I think yeah. that was a, I think that was a pretty misjudged bit of narration. I wish that there had been a bit more of that. And I can believe her saying it is the thing, but it's just yeah, presenting but, it as narration makes it seem like it's fact, but right? The, it's that, and it's also this is a this is a Megan growth issue. Yeah. This is a so Megan comes into yeah, her powers. No, I, I'm with you, but the rest of the issue is so good that I'll excuse it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, 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 it's it's the facts of life. You take the good, you take the bad. Exactly. Right? You take it all. Uh, and uh, but there you have the X Men. And there you have the X Men. That, which is very true. Um, it works. It works for Tootie, and it works for for Brian Bradley. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, we spoke about the rage. I would have liked at least a moment of that rage at Brian. Rage at Brian. Like he gets scolded, and she says some very real things to him that he needs to hear, and that's welcome. But it just feels like that would have. It's not at a point where you can really bring that back unless you want to like make her into the goblin princess again, but which by the way, would be great. Yeah, I would have liked to see the one thing that I think is missing in that issue, and I think it's because listen, the book got canceled. So sure. yeah, yeah. That was the last you know, issue, right? Fifteen issues, and I think the annual comes out after. I would have liked to see her angry with him for not believing in her earlier in the story. Mm-hmm. For deciding she wasn't real. Mm-hmm. Even if it was an understandable thing for him to think, right? I would like to see her angry because that's why she wound up in hell in the first place. I would like to see at least a moment of frustration there. I think that it's a really good issue. And I think that the other thing is, after MI13, they're not major characters in anything, but they right. pop up a lot. And when they do pop up, it's very clear that they're very equal partners. Mm-hmm. And and it is right now too in, in present day. Yeah. That that. Well, now even I would say that she's becoming more significant than he is because he has stepped aside mm-hmm. from the duties of Captain Britain, and her duties only seem to be expanding. Right. Yes, and sh- significantly, she's drawn to look much more like her true. She's much closer to her true form now. I'd love to just see her in the book and, and, you know, she still goes, they've got portals. She still, she, it's her commute. She commutes to Otherward. Right. I wanted to put on that beautiful green costume and be a superhero. Do you remember where she got that costume? It was in the craziest, in the, caper. the craziest world in the cross time caper. It was yep. the world where like everyone is like Rick Jones is everyone's sidekick and, yeah. and giant man is, is up in the stratosphere and he's making uh uh, yeah, and they just offer everybody some and, new clothes, and everyone's like, no, we're good. And Megan's like, I'll try something on. And, and she wears it for the rest of the time. Yeah. Well, it's such a good design that it's like, why would she ever take that off? Mm-hmm. And she does in the late 90s stuff. And guess what? It's like, why does it take off the Megan costume? That Megan costume, the green one, is so good. Yep. No, I want her to put that costume on and be like a working mom, and Brian stays at home at court with the baby. That's what I want. With their hyper-intelligent mutant baby, who I am obsessed with now. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, After that issue of Excalibur, she in, is... In one page. Margaret Braddock is the moment. Yes. She is... She's the baby Yoda that we need. Everything. Yeah. Valeria Richards and Dr. Doom found shaking after reading <laughs> about Maggie and her uncle Jamie. The new 
precocious child and super villainous yes. godfatherish character pairing that we all want to read. I think that that's a good moment for us to go into reader questions. Great. First is one that's a little bit sort of like what we were touching on with the annual specifically. Kyle writes, Hi, Connor. As a lover of all things Captain Britain, Megan is a character I've long felt was underutilized, and her sidelining for much of the MI-13 era was quite disappointing. This was somewhat remedied by her starring in the MI-13 annual. But there's a page in there of public perceptions where she's described as a bit too young for him, and that Brian is a cradle snatcher or even a bloody pedo. I remember being a little uncomfortable with her and Brian's age difference and the implications for their power dynamic, and that feeling has definitely grown with time, especially as of X-Men Gold's annual, reminding her she didn't even learn to read until she was already an adult. So I wonder what your thoughts were on lessening or even removing that age difference from future retellings of their courtship. Thanks to anticipation, long may the Braddocks reign in Avalon, Kyle. So what I would say to that is, that is, again, it's the public perception. And I don't think Megan is necessarily that much younger than him. She is younger than him, but I would say when they meet, he's like 25. It's not outrageously different. It's that she seems so much younger than him that people looking at them assume because of the way she comports herself and behaves that she's like, 17. He's the lord of a manor and a, a physicist, which doesn't get brought up very much. Right. I mean, he's a grad student in his debut story in the 70s. I, I guess he's as, she, he's as old as, as Peter Parker, isn't he? Because they were students together. They were roommates together while he was on an exchange program, but I think he's supposed to be older than Peter because Peter's studies are kind of advanced because he's like a genius. Sure. Right? No, the, the vibe when Brian and Betsy, if you look at like the X-Men in that period... Betsy is about the same age as like Storm. I think what's complicating the matters is that she, Megan probably looks about as old as Brian wants her to look. Well, that's the thing. Like Megan looks like the perfect, like nubile young beauty, but we don't actually know how old she is. And she seems young because she was innocent and naive and identified with children. Or But it's interesting in the Jasper's Warp, in her first appearance where Alan Moore writes her, she's like, chiefing a sig and like much more grizzled as a character it's alan moore <laughs> yeah it's just like and as soon as alan moore is not writing her she's much more childlike whereas like in that first appearance she's very much like what's all this saying brian braddock and oh man what i heard about captain britain and she's like smoking a cigarette as a gremlin it's very funny what would she have been if she had stayed with alan if she moore? Had stayed as Val moore i know it would have been a completely different character well, who knows if he would have even used her beyond that story, though. You sure. know what I mean? Sure. Like, it's then, though, we're introduced to her because after the Jasper's work, she finds these teen kids to hang out with. Mm -hmm. And she feels on a level with them. Right. But I don't think she's actually the same age as them. I think she's just, like, again, has no life experience and is kind of stunted and naive. There's a, there's a ton you could do with it because if she's a creature from other worlds, she could be a timeless being for all we know. And she presented yeah, know, as a baby right. to, to parents who expected a baby. They weren't. Her parents. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we don't know anything really. Like she could be right. So I think that she's definitely younger than him, but I don't think she's more than like four or five years younger than him. And so I don't find it particularly troubling. I find the dynamic troubling, but I think, as I've said now at length, that they've taken steps to have them face that and repair it over the course of the last 30 years of publication. The, on the only thing I'll say to the, uh, in addition to that question is um, one, I, th I think there are, 
so many other reasons to have a problem with that relationship in then an age gap right (laughs) and and two the, the way that alan davis draws them does not present an age difference so it was never that that page actually surprised me also because i was like well wait is that a thing because i didn't know i mean yes there, there is the thing where he finds her to be childlike and kind of beneath him and that's really messed up but but in you know in actual um physical age that certainly doesn't come through in the artwork at all right. in my opinion so that was that that was sort of a I think I think it's probably the the sort of simple nature of the character early on. Yeah, I think that they're commenting more on her affect because she's like no. absolutely stacked. She doesn't look like a child, you know. It's not like she's definitely physically mature. Well, and and not only that, but she's not drawn as looking young. She's drawn. No, she's drawn. They as look looking, the same age. She's drawn as looking, uh, you know, from from. Certainly older than Kitty and Rachel. Yes, even going back to the um, to the early Delano stuff, I, I I think that there's just that epically messed up speech that that Brian gives to Kurt about how she's practically a child that is disturbing. It's just yeah. not. It doesn't mean that literally. Um, and and again, plenty of other plenty of other problems with that relationship going on uh, overtly. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that needed to be addressed. So it's good that they were. There's uh, two sort of related questions that I think I'm going to pose together. Elizabeth Moore writes, is there any part of Megan's history you would change? And Chad Raymond writes, how do you and your guests feel about Megan's true form presenting as Caucasian? Not saying she can't be Faye, Romani, and blonde, but if you're going to have a character of color, it's an interesting choice. This is sort of why I mentioned that I appreciate the annual addressing that she is a racial minority because it's not something that was ever explored in the classic stuff. And she presents visually as white. And there are Romani people who are blonde with blue eyes, just as there are Jewish people who are blonde with blue eyes, just as there are all kinds of people who have, quote unquote, fairer, although that term is very loaded, appearances. But I think that it is because she is one of the fair folk you know, that they have her look that way on some level. The question is, should her true form that isn't the one she made for Brian not be blonde? Should she look more like a Romani person? And I think that would have been cool, but I think that the character looked a certain way at that point to fans and they just didn't change it. There's also, I mean, there would be something very loaded if like, I think it would be complicated to convey that she's looking more white per Brian. So like having her actually look that way is probably a smart choice. Yeah. And she was blonde as a gremlin. So it does seem to be her natural hair color. She was blonde. She was blonde as a gremlin. If you titled your episodes, that's, that's the poll. (laughs) I think that if Amanda Sefton was not also a blonde with blue eyes, it would be less conspicuous. The problem is that of the Romani characters at Marvel, Mm -hmm. only Wanda has any sort of traditionally Romani appearance. And even then only under very specific artists. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, it would be nice if there were 
more Romani characters at Marvel who look because like she's not Sinti, like she's Romani Shawl, and traditionally you would expect sort of an olive skin tone or darker hair. And in that Neri storyline, I was reading it. The reason they find the Neri is because a, another Romani clan had captured the Neri and were like exploiting it. And right. those Romani definitely are swarthy. Yeah. With dark curly hair. So there is a slightly I think Marvel's weird, history with Romani with is Romani not characters is great. just not good. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's not great. And so I guess what I would say is at this point she's blonde. There's no changing that. But if there was something about her history I could change, I would just like to have handled her culture in a more nuanced way. I mean, one thing that really stood out to me, I've been reading the Excalibur Omnibus, is like, I didn't even clock this as a kid because she's blonde and white presenting. But in that arc where they meet the Nazi Excalibur from Hauptmann England's Earth, yeah. and Kitty is their slave. She's just fine. Megan's fine. Right. And Megan, as a Romani, should also be in a lot of trouble on a Nazi Earth. My no-prize way of solving it is that she's passing, and because she's yeah. Hauptmann England's lover, no one knows that she's Romani, and she's just presenting and passing for white. But that's never said in the story. You know what I mean? It's just something that... It's never something that's been fully dealt with. I would like to see more of it. I'm glad that the annual dealt with it. And Teeny Howard has Romani heritage, and I would like to see her explore this character more in a way that is nuanced and... Yeah, very much respectful of that very much i think it same. would be very cool I, I i would i would answer the the first question what would i you know what would i change about uh about her her story any of her story i i mean i i just think that i would have had a moment where that relationship really went away for a while yeah so that she could just you know in in an Alan Moore arc particularly, so that she's being handled very well as a character um, by somebody who who is really definitive for that character. By a Davis arc, you mean? A Dave, yeah. Did I say Alan Moore? Yeah, wrong Alan. I always get my Alans confused. Alan Davis. I mean, she was created by two Alans. It's slightly confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I feel I feel ill-equipped to answer the second question. I think that it is her her final form being what it was her true form being what it was is problematic as a subset of just the overall problematic nature of how her romani heritage is handled up to that point and is probably a further subset of the problematic nature of how romanis were handled in marvel continuity i did like that when doom welcomes her through the portal of the annual she's like you know who are you he's like a fellow gypsy like because he's another very problematic romani character and i was just kind of like huh you could do something interesting with these characters maybe if you thought about it and it was clear that paul cornell thought about it at least so there was that i i would i would actually be interested in hearing um people from because megan can really look like any anyone right and and so I would be interested in hearing from, for example, um, people in the trans community about, you know, the power set lends itself very easily to somebody. Yeah, we talked about that with Mystique a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Well, Megan's another. And, and here's my here's my what if question is what if Brian had been a gay man? 
what Megan has presented as a, as an idealized man. She does. She actually changes to look exactly like Brian's twin on a number of occasions. Yeah. There's there's a kind of a one off. She can take a male form. Yeah. She becomes all of the X Men, including Wolverine. That's I was gonna say. One of the other like non Alan Davis issues that I do love is the one where she transforms into Wolverine, but she's in her sexy green Megan costume. Yes. It's very funny. Well, it's, it's Rick Leonardi and Rick Leonardi. Is yeah, to it's, a, it's good. Yeah. Um, and and I would just be interested. You know, the the issue that we talked about, where she she starts taking on the affect of of whoever she's around. It 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 definitely at least flirts with cultural appropriation. But I think yeah. it's done in a way where I mean that's that's sort of what she's doing, but it's also. The, the ability to do that is who she is and then she's right so it's natural she's not doing it because she wants to steal something she's just naturally part of you and your milieu no matter who you are and that line that it's my face so they must be my features i just yeah love, i love that line it's profound to me in ways i don't know if i can explain um but i'd be interested in hearing because well, the interested implication in is that she that. has no racism in her at all which i think is interesting yeah. because to her physical appearance is so malleable that the question of what race she is yeah. doesn't occur to her outside of the fact that as a child she and her parents were treated with disdain by people who were bigoted against romani people but that's the only real sense of race she has you know what i mean mm -hmm. Outside of what I guess she saw on television, I guess I, I guess I would more, more than the the Romani aspect, I would I would say that that issue is a, an opportunity to interrogate why, a, 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 a not a Romani character but a fairy creature would naturally be Caucasian to the, would naturally the be white, right? Yeah, yeah. Like why why is that the assumption? I, I it would have been nice to see them make a different choice, um, but um, I think it was the time. And now, and now the character is just a leg. You know, there's just a legacy with the character, and you're not going to redesign her now. Maxwell Warner writes, "Hi Connor, and no doubt illustrious guest. I'm here to submit a question regarding Megan and Megan. Of course, I'm talking about Excalibur's lovely Gloriana and Academy X's lively Pixie. Being that the both of them essentially share a name and are British, comparisons were already bound to come up even before this latest issue of Excalibur canonized Megan with two G's status as a mutant fairy hybrid, not unlike Pixie." For over a year now, there's been fan discussion concerning Pixie belonging on Excalibur, given her heritage. Do you think that there's room for both Megan and Megan in Excalibur and or the X-Books at large? Well, I don't have to sell you on Gloriana. I know you've expressed reservations about Pixie, especially in regards to the Greg Land era. But among a certain generation of fans, myself included, Pixie is quite beloved. Personally, I think it could be very neat, should I say tidy, to see the two of them interacting. Despite their similarities, they're actually quite different, and they could easily fill complementary roles in the book. Sincerely, Maxwell. So, yes, Pixie is a character I've had some difficulty with. I am warming to Pixie. I think that if Pixie's name was not also Megan, you could easily throw them together. But the fact that the only difference between their names is a one or two Gs situation, and they are the two fairy mutant hybrids, is a little rough. I think you just have to call her Pixie all the time. I'm not sure that I would put Pixie on Excalibur. I feel like, more to the point, she feels a little redundant with Jubilee to me in terms of character archetype. I just don't know if she would fit on that team if Jubilee is sticking around. That said, I think it would be really fun now that we're in Otherworld to have her pop up for an arc because her evil fairy mother is presumably on Otherworld somewhere. I would love to see Mrs. Gwyn 
as part of Merlin's terrifying fascist government in the Holy Republic of Fae. I think that would be really fun. And you could have Pixie have a guest starring adventure with them where she and Double G Megan explore their heritage or something. I think that would be cute. But I'm not sure that she would fit on the team, given that hopefully Megan, 2G Megan, Gloriana, will be joining the team. And Jubilee is already kind of the younger one with the sparkly powers. So I'm just not sure that that would work. Andrew, I don't know if you know anything about this character. I so. don't, but I welcome the opportunity to do a sort of who's on first confusion uh, <laughs> you know, dialogue. <laughs> the, page two Megans, the two yeah. Megans. Which one's Megan? That would be a like funny that. issue for sure. I just don't know if you'd want to do it consistently. And I'd also like to just, since you brought up Jubilee, uh, express my sincere admiration for the Captain Britain Jubilee's Union Jack sunglasses. Rock and cool. May she rest in peace. Finally, Robert Secundus writes, Hi, Connor and Guest. I'm wondering if you have any favorite stories or legends involving the Fae, and if there's any approaches to the Fae that you'd like to see applied to the Marvel Universe. I'm wondering how you see fantasy species like the Fae interacting with the core of X-Men, the mutant metaphor, a metaphor which relies on a fictional species. Is it a mistake when X-Men brings in other kinds of mutants, like Warlock or Brew from other species? And can the metaphor interact usefully with something like the Fae? Or in stories involving other species, is it best to leave the metaphor behind and focus on adventure stories? Best, Rob Secundus. What do you think about that? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot about the Fae um, and, and those types of stories. It's not my area of expertise. But um, I, I think that... Um, the mutant metaphor is is typically um, fairly flexible. I don't know. I I don't know how it would interact with um, with the Fey. I think it works pretty well with uh, with Brew, from what I've seen. Mm -hmm. The Brood, because his his ability to feel individualism is his, and much like Warlock's ability to feel empathy also works. And Warlock, I mean, works like gangbusters. One of my yeah. favorites. Um, there was a piece of that question that I did want that, that did spark something for me, and I, I missed it. Can you? Do you think that in stories where other species like that get involved, it's better to leave the metaphor behind and focus on adventure, or do you think that the metaphor can interact usefully with an idea like the Fey? I think it's just. I, I think. I, I think it's really a question of what can you find useful to say about. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if there isn't anything, then definitely focus on on the uh, on the adventure stories and maybe don't don't even make you you wouldn't even need to make the characters mutants in that case. I don't think all of the fairies are mutants. No, no. Most of them aren't. <laughs> right. I will say one of my very favorite uh, bits of, of X-Men ephemera is leprechauns exist um, canonically. <laughs> In Cassidy Keep. In Cassidy Keep, and they apparently know everyone's secret names because uh, they are yeah. the ones who reveal uh, the, the first time Logan is ever said on panel. It's the Leprechaun. That's exactly right. So I, I think it can be a lot of fun. I think that um, I think that you would want to be careful in that, you know, with the mutant metaphor in 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 that uh, in that case. But I think that any creator should probably be careful with that metaphor because that metaphor deals specifically with marginalization and, and you're going to want to be thoughtful about how you approach it. Uh, but I don't think that there needs to be any necessarily any, any restriction. It's just, it's really in the execution. 
I would agree. It becomes complicated because the problem with the mutant metaphor, right, that makes it a little bit limited, as with any fantasy minority metaphor, is that mutants do have dangerous powers. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for people to be nervous about mutants, Mm -hmm. as opposed to in reality where bigotry like that is irrational. Which is why it's much better now uh, in this era where there actually is a lot of intentional intersectionality as opposed to five white kids. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. It's why Claremont kind of rescued that from being a mess. And it's only better now as more and more intersections are put into the work. That is obviously compounded by also she's a magical being. Like when you add things to it, it gets a little further away from real world marginalization. I think that with Megan, what's particularly interesting about it conceptually is that if you were to lean into the fact that she is a Romani character, Romani people, part of the way that they are marginalized historically in society is that they are perceived as otherworldly and magical. Right. So you could play with that. You just have to be careful because in this case, she literally is. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things that you have to be careful with. But I think there's potential there to do something interesting. More to the point, Teeny's run on Excalibur is very specifically about finding what magic really means in respect to mutants and to mutant power. And Megan is a perfect character for that because it's been implied that the fact that a mutant king now holds Avalon Mm -hmm. impacts Avalon. And that the fact that a Krakoan king sits on the throne and a Krakoan is Captain Britain means that Avalon now reflects Krakoa in addition to reflecting the British Isles because Jamie and Betsy are both British and Krakoan. Right. And similarly, Megan being the court sorceress, but also being a mutant and tapping into other world and communing with the fairies as a mutant makes her different from someone like Pixie's mother, who is a being of other world naturally, or Roma or Merlin or one of those characters. She is marginalized in the sense of other world. It would be interesting to see more of that. Like, how do 100% pure blood fairies feel about this woman who is a hybrid of something else? Is that a thing that they have an issue with? They seem to be okay with it in the case of the Braddocks, but that's because it was a specific task that right. Sir James was told to perform. I think that's. I think you sort of hit on uh, on a piece of the answer at least, which is there. There are different. There are different spheres of marginalization. The the mutants are called witch breed, aren't they? The witch breed, yeah. Which is from 1602, but they brought it in now in Otherworld. That must mean something. They're what not does, calling them right. the witch breed because they respect them. You know right. what I mean? Like what does what exactly does that mean? That would be the yeah. that would be the thing to explore. Yes, I agree. And I think that there's a particular resonance with the way that Romani people are treated in reality. There's a parallel there that I think you could do interesting things with with Megan. Also, if they want to retcon Black Black Tom to be a a mutant who's also a leprechaun, I won't fuss. (laughs) I just I just I just I just like the leprechauns. That's all. It's nice. I just want them to finally, after 40 years, officially say that he and Juggernaut are a couple because we all know they are. There's some real Fezzik and Inigo energy going on there. And and uh, Black Tom dreamed a mountain into the shape of Juggernaut at some point in the X-Force run. Yeah, Juggernaut started doing crimes to pay 
Black Tom's hospital bills. Yeah. My dad was like 15 reading it as it was coming out and was just like, oh, they're gay. That's interesting. Yeah. And he's he asked me, he was like, have they ever actually said that? And I was like, no. He's like, wow, because the stuff you say on your podcast, I usually am like, oh, I never noticed that. That one I definitely noticed because like if you've ever met gay people, yeah. you're like, it's the 70s. They don't talk about it. But you're like, oh, like those two guys are a couple. For and sure. They don't talk about it, you know? And it's beautiful. They're, they're, oh, yeah. They're, they're great. I want them to get married so that Juggernaut can come live on Krakoa. Absolutely. Like North Star's husband. And then we see them in the background at the Tiki Bar with uh, with North Star and, uh, and uh, what's his name? Great question. His name is Kyle, but Kyle. it took you a second, didn't yes, it? Yes, Kyle. <sighs> Alas. Gotta hope that that character will become a character. Anyone can make me give a shit. Leah's gonna put the work in, I think. Love, loving X Factor so far. She's great. So, yeah, it's a great book. So, hopefully. Robert, as for your other question, I would say, you know, I am Irish. I love, like, all of that weird Celtic folklore stuff. I love the whole Belle Dame Sans Merci concept, although I think that in X-Men, that's Celine, right? There's lots of cool fairy lore you could work into Otherworld. I'm excited to see what Cy Spurrier is going to do with Camelot in the new Black Knight series, because Black Knight and Captain Britain have always been really closely associated with each other. And it's a mystery right now as to where King Arthur has gone in the Otherworld, because like that's why the throne of Avalon is vacant, right? And, like, where is Morgan Le Fay? Apocalypse is gone. Is she still in his basement somewhere? Like, you know, I'm sure that's going to come back up. Exodus was down there. I think Exodus is... is uh... You think he's got her? Well, I, I mean, he he must have inherited... You know, I, <laughs> I, I, want, I want to read... I want to read a data page, which is Apocalypse's, like, senior will, where he's like, okay, you guys are awesome... Uh, you know, have have a really great summer. I bequeath my vivisected sorceress to, <laughs> to Bennett to Paris. Yeah, my giant belt that has the A on it goes to Angel. Uh, you know, <laughs> I I just I just think that that would be a great little day. That would be to nice. You, yeah, yeah. Angel deserves something after all that. Absolutely. But yeah, no. So what I would really like is honestly like. I'm sure Teeny's way ahead of me because Teeny has written like Vampire the Masquerade stuff. I just want everything that's in the entire RPG source book for Changeling the Lost, not the Dreaming, the Lost, to be incorporated. Like that vibe where like fairies are fucking scary and they will mess you up and you should not trifle with them. That's the shit I like. And that's what I want the Holy Republic of Fae to be. And it's what I loved about Ten of Swords in addition to like the overall Excalibur vibe of Ten of Swords that I was so taken with was the way that Saturnine would just like fairy queen her way through shit and like Otherworld was just a topsy-turvy nightmare that all of these Earth characters did not know how to process. And that's what I'm hoping we'll see more of as Excalibur continues. I love when the Fae are portrayed as so alien that it's like almost Lovecraftian, right? Like it's like we cannot fathom the way their brains work. Well, they certain, there's, there's certainly a large canvas to paint on. Yeah, I'm super excited to see where everything goes. I think the expansion of Otherworld outside of the boundaries of Avalon was a brilliant yes. decision. It was great. And I am very excited to see where everything goes from here. So we've been talking for three hours so it's an average, it's an average size. It's episode. an average episode of Cerebro, yes. <laughs> it used to be giant size, but I've given up the ghost. Do you have any final thoughts on 
the delightful Megan before we start to wrap up? I'm trying to think. I mean, we, we covered we covered a lot of the points. I think I think really I'm I'm just really excited about where the book is now. It's 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 very open right now. It can go in so many different directions. Every book that's coming out is worth reading and most of them are frankly great and Excalibur is part of that. To see to see Megan becoming more a part of that is is really exciting. I definitely I mean I I, I guess this is this is just recap, but I really do want to see her the sort of limitless potential that's there um, for her as a character with the power set that she has actualized and just more attention paid. Yeah, I just want more of her. She has been underused since Davis left Excalibur, point blank. There's so much potential to what you can do with a character like that. It's a great character. And in the hands of a good writer, so-called limitless power is an engine for story, not yes. a limitation. On story. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm excited to see what Teeny does with her. And I really hope that she'll be a major part of the book going forward. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being my guest. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. This was great. I love this character. And it was a lot of fun to talk to someone who also loves this more obscure character. Because she shouldn't be. She should be a top-level character. I want a Marvel Legends figure. I want every costume. I want Megan merch. Hear me, Marvel. You want a beer hat that has Megan on one side and, and Brian on the other. Not a beer hat for oh, Brian. Oh, not for not Brian. Really. No, you, yeah, no, that's right. No, you put you put, you put put lemonade in the Brian side. Right, yeah. But I would love, I don't know. I want like Megan and Saturnine merch. I want Megan and Saturnine like to fight, which I'm sure is coming, but I'm excited. That is what I... When she was like, I don't want to leave the court because that awful woman might get. So say we all. <laughs> that, that, that is a fight that has been brewing for... For decades. Ever, ever. Yeah. Yeah. I love in the issue toward the end of the Crossing Keeper when Saturnine helps them get home and she's like talking to Brian. She's like, you seem happy with her. Like, that's nice. Good to right. see you happy. I love that for Megan you. Megan just says, grrr. <laughs> like Megan just growls like an animal. That is the, um, that is the one time... Like she's 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 sweet and light, and then she sees Saturnine, and she's like, she's like that cow. I hate her. Hold right? my earrings. Hold my earrings. Yeah, exactly. Like Rachel, take my earrings. I need to fight this woman. <laughs> I had a lot of fun. Thank you again for joining me. Why don't you Likewise. tell the listeners where they can follow you on the internet and plug anything you want to plug? Absolutely. Um, you can find me on the Twitter machine at Julius Goat. Um, and you can find me on Instagram, uh, at Julius code also, and, uh, enjoy my three posts a year. Um, I wrote a novel that came out about a year ago called the revisionaries. <clears throat> you can find that under the gnome de plume, A.R. Moxon, and that just came out in paperback. Um, the Washington post called it weirdest book of the year. At the end of 2019, <laughs> so depending on so how, an Excalibur vibe, right? You know, um, you know the, I will say the the my writing is uh, is definitely influenced by comic books in general. Excalibur is definitely in there. The, the idea that anything goes, um, and you know, presenting very strange things um, with hopefully confidence and a lot of sincerity is in there. Um, you'll even probably find something a little bit like a cross time caper. And depending on how weird you thought books were in 2019, 
this may have been the weirdest. So if you like weird, I've got it for you. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can email Cerebro with your questions, comments, and feedback at Cerebrocast at gmail.com. The next two episodes will be about Sage, a.k.a. Tessa, and a little exclusive bit of info, Lorna Dane, the Mistress of Magnetism, All right. as Polaris. So if you have questions about Sage or Polaris, please feel free to write in. I am really excited about the coming year. I have some fun guests lined up, and I am having so much fun doing this podcast. You can find all of the episodes as well as transcripts, which I am working on, I swear to God, at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page. We also now have a Discord fan server after Spencer Ackerman put me on the spot live on air in the Magneto episode. It's fun so far. If you like Discord, come chat. It's a pretty chill, laid-back X-Men discussion zone. There is a link on the Cerebrocast.com website. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all your support. I love doing this, and I love you. So until next time, everybody, bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men.